Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. To the big Brazilian, Berwitzki to the right. He was trying to connect with Alm. Here's Klaus! Klaus wants it, that ball bypasses him, and falls to Joe Kitty, who steps it in, and fires St. Louis City ahead. His first goal for the new club, and this crowd is rapturous. Austria deflected, it's in the back of the net. All the footballing gods are smiling at St. Louis City. Their expansion team record will not be tonight. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Yes, St. Louis City SC is where we open coming off of an NCAA tournament weekend, a Battlehawks weekend. Uh, there were a few signings in the NFL. Like everything happened this weekend. City is the lead here in St. Louis. Why? Because they've done something that has never happened before in the history of MLS. Guys, for the first time in MLS's history, a team that was an expansion squad has won its first four games of its existence. They also got their first shutout, otherwise known as a clean sheet in the lingo of soccer fans. Alex Ferrario, don't know if you were aware of that in team history. Three nothing on Saturday. The crowd was incredible, despite the fact that I'm pretty sure it felt like it was about 15 degrees outside. You guys, if you were out there, deserve a round of applause for your performance just as the team does. For me, Alex, my biggest takeaway, the expectations have officially changed. This is no longer just, hey, we're having fun watching City. Oh, but we're having fun still, man. That's still true. We can still have fun watching them, but now expectations are starting to rise. Now you've got a team that we can actually talk about as, okay, what does this mean? If you're 4-0 to start out the season, we might really be watching a playoff team in year one here in St. Louis. I remember before the season, everybody involved with City was saying, hey, listen, we're going to build this thing the right way. We don't know what the results are going to be like in year one, but bear with us. We think this is going to pay dividends down the road. It's already paying dividends, and we're just four games into this thing. It's a hell of a lot of fun to watch, but the results are something worth monitoring. We now. are having fun, fellas. We are enjoying ourselves these days. <laughs> the, the part that gets me is when you look at the standings and you realize that they are the only team that is undefeated. Who would have freaking thought that at the beginning of all of this, this expansion team that put a ton of dudes together through that expansion draft, made a couple of trades, would be doing this. They've scored what they're tied for the most goals so far through MLS and not to make it a hockey comp, but, you know, I'm a hockey guy. That's what happens. 
it does feel a little bit like what Vegas did in that expansion year, where it's like the island of misfit toys. And maybe that's not the case for MLS. I'd have to have the conversation with some of those players to find out. But you're selected in an expansion draft, right? Like you get that identity. They're like, well, they didn't want us. Now this team does. And you bond through that. And then you put into the fact that Lutz and Carnell spent all of the time that they did building this roster and putting it together the way that they've wanted it. And now it's paying off every single match for this team. And to go back to Taylor Twelman, who told us a couple of weeks ago, like, hey, this is not an easy style of soccer to play for the longevity of a season. That may be true. But if you get a ton of dudes who have the mindset of, hey, they didn't want us. And now these guys do. This is our team now. They seem to be pretty damn committed to this style where they suffocate the opposition and it does feel like their opponents don't expect that out of an expansion team. Like that's what Vegas was. Every time Vegas stepped on the ice, you're thinking, well, sooner or later, this magic is going to fall away. And it never did all the way up until that Stanley Cup final. That is starting to be the case now, at least in my mind for the City SC team. Yeah, for me, it, it's that that style of play. It's just taking the league by storm. I mean, it's clear in the four games Three of the four of those teams were not weren't prepared for because San Jose wanted to dominate the midfield. Then you go and you look at kind of the passing breakdown. City dominated the midfield, and then they just it, it felt like the whole game it was ninety minutes of hell for San Jose. The earthquakes they they struggled with it all game long. And, and again, City they were did not quaking in their boots. Wasn't good. Get off the stage. But, but, but I think their Thought style, their style is taking the league by storm. It's only been done once before, and it was when Carnell was with uh, New York. So I, I think their style is what's leading to this success. And what was really the thing that impressed me most was Parker didn't play in that game over the weekend. And I was I was looking at that, going, okay, you don't have Parker. I don't know if they would have started Blom, but he wasn't available because he was sick. Okay, now you're starting to see some of those pieces starting to be missing because of injury. How do they look? Granted, they probably never really needed the defense in that game, but they were able to win without those guys. And that was what was impressive to me. It will still be interesting to see what happens as the season goes along, but I think they're going to be able to. They've shown the first four games. They're able to keep up the pace of this attack. And if they can, they're going to have success, and they are going to create higher expectations of a potential playoff run. I think what you just mentioned there, especially with the guys that were out, is is something that caught my eye as well. They've gone with a number of different lineups so far. We're four games into the season, and they've already shown their impressive depth. And when I think of expansion teams, a lot of the times, or just in general teams that are a bit undermanned, like we just watched the NCAA tournament all weekend long. You've seen a lot of the time some of these mid-major programs that go up against Power 5 squads, they can play 20 minutes with them. They could play even sometimes 30 minutes with them. You get into that last 10 minutes, typically the team that is more talented starts to pull away. That's where they're able to make their run because their depth just, it starts to show itself. They've had more guys that have filtered in throughout the game. Their guys are fresher at the end. And now you've suddenly got a spot where you can go out there and, and make your run at the end of the game. I thought that would be the case for City, where, yeah, maybe in the first half, they're able to keep up with whoever it is that they're going up against. Maybe in the second half early on, they get that that quick push right at the beginning of it. And then by the end, you would start to see the other team pull away. We have not seen that. In fact, we've seen the opposite, where City, I think it's in at least two or three of their games so far, they've had a late game goal that basically puts them up over the top where you know, okay, this is the one that's going to end it for them. That is something that I did not foresee, and it's something that speaks to the depth 
of the front office, Lutz, and all of the people that were in charge of putting this team together, they deserve a ton of credit for having that this early on with this squad. It's something that I don't think anybody could have possibly anticipated. Speaking of mid-major programs going up against Power 5 opponents. Uh, don't do this to yourself, man. Yeah. Sticking in it longer than it's expected. And sometimes just downright dominating from start to finish. The number 15 seed, the Princeton Tigers. It's never been sweeter if you're a Princeton fan than right now. I'll go to hell, Brad Nessler. That's what it sounded like oh. over the weekend on Turner. I, I didn't see it coming. Did not see it coming one bit. And then about halfway through the first half, Alex, we got about 10, 12 minutes into the game. I looked over at my wife. I was watching the game at home with, with Kara. I said, they're just better. Like at some point, you just have to admit that the other team is better than you are. I can't believe it is true, but it was. Princeton was the better basketball team on Saturday. If you were putting together a script of what does it look like for Princeton to beat Missouri, their coach would have written down every single thing that took place. They dominated the offensive rebounds. They finished the game with just nine turnovers. Missouri all season long, they were going to win. It was probably by adding in extra possessions through the turnovers. It was the opposite. Princeton had 16 offensive rebounds. They turned the ball over nine times. They ended up winning the possession battle. You look at Kobe Brown, not a good game by him. He ended up with 12 points. Most of those came when the game had already really been decided. Demoy Hodge had been their second best player all season long. Two points mm-hmm. on the day. Couldn't hit anything from three and looked kind of disengaged at times. They they had no answers, none whatsoever. Princeton deserves so much credit, dude. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of Mizzou fans that are texting in saying something about how this is the worst loss in program history and all yeah, these this no. nonsense that I saw over the weekend. That sucked. Nothing about that game was fun. But also, can we please have a little perspective on this thing, man? <laughs> Mizzou was a six-point favorite in that game. I covered Mizzou in Columbia when they lost in the same season to UMKC, Charleston Southern, and NC Central. They were a 26-point favorite in a home game against a team that got paid to come to Columbia, and they lost. This was nowhere near the worst loss in program history. It sucked. It was super disappointing because I thought Mizzou was going to the Sweet 16. I'm not going to be some fraud and tell you that I didn't. I did. I thought they were going to win. They didn't, and Princeton deserves all the credit, dude. They played their asses off on Saturday. I was the same way. I thought they were going to go the distance after getting over the hump of Utah State, but, man, they defended the three really well. Mizzou didn't shoot it very well. You could tell that when Noah Carter, and Noah Carter is a great player, when he is your best player on the floor through the first half, there's going to be some issues for that team, and they just never could figure out Princeton's defense. Princeton owned underneath the basket. They owned the rebounds, didn't allow them to get secondary scoring opportunities. And then you could just tell in the second half that they started to get frazzled, which did not happen a lot this season. Like Mizzou, even when they were down this season, found ways to remain stable and put it together and find a way to climb back in. They just lost it in that game against Princeton. And I think some of it has to do with how they defended against their three point shot. And then when the second option was gone of driving it to the basket, there was nothing for Mizzou to do. And, and to your point on it not being the worst loss in program history, because I agree with you there, everybody knew that this could happen to Missouri because Missouri could beat anybody because of the style they played. 
but they can also lose to anybody Several with the style of their play. And, and that's exactly what happened. It, Princeton, give them credit to them. I'm not saying that Missouri lost because they played a bad game. That's not the sole reason. Missouri did play a bad game. Princeton did play really well. That was as good as you could expect from the Princeton Tigers. But I always knew that this was possible for Missouri. They could be a team that could go to a Elite Eight because they're shooting and their style, or they could have been knocked out in the first round. Now, it didn't happen in the first round. It happened in the second round. But I, I think that when you look at the Missouri Tigers, this was always the possibility, was that there was going to be a game like that in a win-or-go-home scenario. And when you're the favorite and are expected to take down a 15 seed, the moment you get to that second half, to your point, Alex, pressure starts to mount, and you could see that it did un- un- it did phase the Tigers a little bit. It, it did, but I would also add this. They never – I don't think they ever had a chance in that one. No, there like was for, a slight from, chance in the first half where they got back within like four, I think. At the half, right before the half, when Sean East made that final basket, I was like, all right, if they're going to make a run, this is going to be the thing that ends up getting it going. And then there was, I think, 11 minutes to go. They got down by like five or six, something yeah. like that. They had an opportunity, and then Princeton immediately hit a three. They Every time Missouri felt like it was going to go on a run, Princeton seemed to answer with a three. And it wasn't even their offense that really won it for them. It was their defense. Princeton completely shut down anything that Missouri was trying to do offensively. And I'm sure that there will be some that say that Dennis Gates was outcoached on Saturday. In the first half, I felt that way. I did. By the end of the game... Man, he tried everything. Tried a 1-3-1 zone. Tried the full court pressure. Tried going with a packet in zone. Tried going with man-to-man. They had no answers for them offensively. And then on the other end, he tried everything. Tried going through Kobe. Tried opening up the offense with some back screens to get guys open on the outside. There was nothing that was working. Nothing. Princeton played their butts off. They did it against Arizona. I thought it was a fluke. I thought it was one of those games just like what we see every year where there's a underdog team that comes out and plays the game of their lives and then they get whooped in the second round now man that princeton team felt for real with what we saw from them on saturday i will be very curious to see what they look like in the sweet 16 against creighton for alex ferrario and tina hendrickson i'm brandon kiley did want to mention by the way it, it was an unbelievable weekend of sports here in st louis i was genuinely overwhelmed at times where i was like what else do i need to be watching because saturday night you had city you had um the all of the ncaa tournament going on the world baseball classic was taking place then you had a couple of blues games over the weekend on friday and sunday you had the xfl as well with the battle hawks getting 36,000 people in the dome at the same time that city was playing oh by the way the same day that mizzou was playing it just an unbelievable weekend here in st louis for sports uh if you were somebody that got downtown you were one of about sixty thousand people that were able to get down there this weekend for one of the city or battlehawks games so pretty cool weekend for sports here in st louis coming up in about 15 minutes or so we'll talk with one of the goal scorers for st louis city sc but coming up next joel hofer is he changing the conversation about this blues team we'll talk about it next here on 101 espn we're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Up the left side, they get it in. Toe drag to the net. Save made by Hofer. Wilson right there. Put it on and another save made by Hofer. His 20th of the hockey game. Joel Hofer, fourth NHL start, first home start. Congratulations on the National Hockey League shutout. It does go a long way. He's coming up here and he's doing a good job and playing well. So um, he knows he can do the job. 
Good on you, Joel Hofer. He now has a 1.0 goals against on average and a 970 save percentage in his last seven games. Alex Joel Hofer, if you combine what he did in the AHL with what he's done in the NHL, he hasn't allowed more than two goals in each of his past seven starts. It's been unbelievable uh, to watch him. And last night, he gets the opportunity in the NHL and gets his first career shutout. It de- technically doesn't go down that way mm-hmm. because of the skate issue, but we're going to give it to him. We're going to give him the credit. This was a real opportunity for him, so much so that he capitalized in a way where the Blues said, you know what, just go ahead and stick around. We're going to keep you up here with the NHL club. I think he was always in their plans to come up at some point as one of their call-ups this year, Alex, but now he just makes it official. I was super impressed. He looked composed over the last couple of games. I wasn't sure if they were going to give him those opportunities or if it would go to Grice. Uh, they decided to go with him, and he wins them two games. I know there's a lot of Blues fans out there that wish that he didn't, but it is a positive development for the long-term health of this organization. What did you see from Joel Hofer, and what does it mean for both he and for the Blues if this is real? Composure. That's what I saw from Joel Hofer. And look, uh, you do have to put something to this and if you read into it or not Craig Berube you know Chris Kerber asked him on pregame Friday night against the Capitals when Hofer made his first start of the season you know he's he asked does the team or do you tell the team you have to tighten up in front of this young kid and Berube said absolutely everybody is going to play tighter tonight and they did against Washington and they also did against the Winnipeg Jets but with that being said you just took down two teams that were in desperation mode Washington's outside of the playoffs looking in and the Winnipeg Jets of course are sitting in a wild card spot, potentially losing that because of that victory by the Blues and Joel Hofer. But I see composure with him. He's not floundering in net. He's not trying to go post to post with desperation saves. He's in the right place at the right time. Maybe that's being six foot five. That can also help you in net. But, you know, I had a great conversation on pregame with Panger last night, and Panger just said the kid acts like a pro. Because he knows what he needs to do. He doesn't let the bright lights phase him. And he goes out and he backs it up. And I thought that you saw that with Joel Hofer. There's still some learning curves with this. That's what's going to take place. But there's no reason that the Blues should send him back to the AHL. Because now you got to figure out how to be a backup goaltender. Because that's what he's going to be next season on this uh, one-way contract that he has next year. you got to figure out how to be a guy who's only going to play 30-something games in the NHL regular season. How do you adapt to that, and can you get into the right mindset of not playing every day like you just did in Springfield? But it's going to set up some interesting developments of what they do moving forward because I made the comp last night. Joel, I see a lot of Jake Ottinger and Joel Hofer. Jake Ottinger came up to the Dallas Stars, started as the backup, and took the job from Anton Hudobin. I'm not saying that's going to happen right away for Joel Hofer, but I was texting with Ryan Smith, the play-by-play man of the Springfield Thunderbirds, and even Ryan said it would not surprise me if Joel Hofer is the number one goaltender in the next two to three years. I like that. I could. I, I I thought to your point when you said the composure, I, I was impressed by that because I, I think last year when he was up, if I remember, it was only two games, but I do remember him feeling kind of, I don't, I don't know what the right word would be, but he felt kind of loose in the crease. He felt kind of erratic at times, and this time around, he, he looked composed. And to your point on learning the backup role, I do think that will be crucial for him as he's up here. I don't know how long he'll stay up here if he's up here the rest of the year. They send him down when Springfield gets ready to start the playoffs, but 
I, I, I do want to see him a little bit more. I, I want to see it now more of a Bennington slash Hofer split, and Grice can be the guy that's either up in the press box or look good in a hat while he's sitting on the bench. So I, I was really impressed. Some of the saves he made, and again, to your point on the defense, we'll see what they look like. I think we're still kind of in that honeymoon phase with Hofer to where it's, Absolutely. hey, it's a kid. you got to tighten up around him. Okay, we see that from the Blues defense for one or two games, but what happens as they go along, it'll be interesting to see. But I, I was impressed. I He definitely proved in the first two games that, hey, the Blues made the right decision to give him the one-way contract and make him unofficially, officially the backup goaltender for next season. Yeah, before I could sit here and, and sing the praises of Joel Hofer as the guy who's ready for the NHL, show me a game that he plays in front of the defense that played against the Minnesota Wild. See, I've heard a lot of that, man. I don't know. I, I think that... The defense has been better. They have been tighter over the last couple of games. But can I give you the numbers from those two games that jo- that Hofer ended up seeing? He saw a total of 68 shots, 66 scoring chances, 27 high danger chances. And if you look at the expected goals versus what he actually ended up allowing, I know that these can be fluky, but just as a way to kind of get a reference on how good he was relative to expectations, he allowed four and a half fewer goals than expected in those first two starts. Joel Hofer was a part of why the Blues ended up winning those games. He was a part of why they were uh, suppressing goals the way that they did. Was the defense better? Yes. Does Joel Hofer also deserve some credit for keeping the score as low as it was? Yeah, I I think he did. And I will be curious, Alex, there's not a ton of time left to see what it looks like comparatively speaking, but if Hofer continues playing this way, and if Bennington is a, is coming back and we see him behind the exact same unit and he doesn't play as well as Hofer does, I'm not saying you move on from Bennington. I don't believe that to be the case. I think next year you just got a really goal, really good goalie tandem in the regular season with Benner and Hofer. I think what it does is it props you up with another failsafe in case Benner goes through some regular season struggles. I have no questions, no doubts about who Jordan Bennington is in the postseason. I continue to wonder if he is more of a playoff goalie than a regular season goalie, though, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that if you've got a guy that can be the regular season goalie for, you know, 30, 40 games along with Benner, and then you just go to Bennington and ride him in the playoffs. Hey, man, that's not a bad way to build your roster. But I, I will be watching that down the stretch to see what Hofer looks like compared to Jordan Bennington. The defense did a good job of eliminating the backdoor tap-in chances last night. And they did that against the Washington Capitals as well. They're still giving up those high-danger chances. That's just the case. But those backdoor tap-ins, they did a really good job of eliminating from. And that's the that was the demise of Jordan Bennington's numbers this season. But let's pump the brakes on Jordan Bennington needs to be traded because you know, I saw that on post game last night and we're going to get that now. Let's pump the brakes there because a 22 year old is not ready to be an NHL goaltender. You're going to like, let's love the, the luxury of having what you had last season in Bennington and Huso. you might have next year with Bennington and Hofer. And that's a luxury for a team that's going through this retool because you don't got to worry about the goaltending. And when you don't have to worry about the goaltending, you can retool everything else a lot quicker than when you're trying to get everything done right, but your goaltender can't stop the puck. And right now you've got two of them. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. And I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up next, we're talking to one of the goal scorers from City SC over the weekend, St. Louis City SC striker, Nico Joachine. 
We'll talk to him next here on 101 ESPN. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Klaus wants it. That ball bypasses him and falls to Joe Kitty who steps it in and fires St. Louis City ahead. His first goal for the new club, and this crowd is rapturous. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That's what it sounded like on Apple TV on Saturday night as St. Louis City SC striker Nico Joachini got his first goal in a city uniform. He joins us now via the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Nico, we appreciate the time, man. Congratulations on your first goal in MLS. Congratulations on yet another win. How are you doing this morning? Hey, good morning, guys. Um, I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. Very happy, very proud um, to uh, start off the week. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to another good week and another good game on Saturday. Absolutely. So, Nico, this is a surprising start to all of us on the outside looking in. You guys are at the top of the table right now at 4-0. and Does this surprise you guys internally at how well the start of the season has gone for City? You know, I don't know if surprised is the right word to use. Um Personally, I think that um, actually as a group, we prepared to perform. We had our values, our principles, our way of playing um, down before the season started. And I think as games go on, we are perfecting it. So, you know, we I wouldn't say surprised, but I'd say um, just very happy and very proud of what we've done so far. Uh, we didn't predict anything at all at the start. We just have an inner objective. And we just go from game to game and try to try to complete them. And that's what's been happening. So, so yeah, just, just very happy. Nico, the, the best part about an expansion team is, is, you know, you start with that fresh slate and you start off where the expectations may start lower and then they just continue to rise. But as a group of players, you build that bond over time. Did that bond feel like it was there at the beginning of the season? Or do you still feel like it's just continuously growing throughout the year? Oh, there was an initial bond at the beginning of the season, but definitely not the, the level and, and, and torque that there is now. Um, we, as players, as individuals, obviously we need our teammates. And in training, we've been building it up with the coaching staff because they're a big part of it as well. You know, without them, without Bradley, without the whole staff, we, we wouldn't make it as far as, as we think we would. So, um, you know, uh, it's, it's something that when you play more games together and the further you go, the more that bond strengthens so um yeah as the season goes on the bond will get stronger and stronger especially with um the whole group because it is true that there are only 11 players starting the game and but they're definitely more than 11 players um finishing the game at the end of one so that bond keeps to be uh, keeps building and just get stronger and stronger Nico, I thought it was interesting after the game on Saturday, uh, Carnell came out and he talked about your 
your game and how it has blended into the style that city is playing. And he said, you know, it's, it's kind of like painting. There's different types of paints you can use depending on what kind of a picture you're trying to put out. He said, you're starting to blend with what they are doing now. And it's starting to build what he called a beautiful picture. Uh, when you think about your style and the style that you're playing now with city, how long did it take to to really understand it and to get to become a part of it? And what is it like for you to blend in with the style that Carnell wants to play? Um, to understand it, it probably took longer than executing it. Um, uh, you know, I, when I first got here, I knew what the concept was, but I needed detail. So they gave me detail and I've just been practicing that detail. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, we were what, together for preseason um, a couple months, and um, that was enough to get the groove started, but nothing like now. Um, I think the whole team has a complete understanding of what uh, Bradley wants, and um, we're here to execute it. And it's taken us, you know, less time than expected because we are a new team. No one, no, had, no one really knew anyone um, on, a, on a training level, on a personal level. Um, except for certain individuals. So to have come together so rapidly and so efficiently um, is is wonderful. Can that benefit a team, Nico, when you don't know the nuances of other players on a fresh new team to where it is just playing the system rather than if you know one guy specializes in something, maybe you're a little bit more lenient to allow that individual take over? Yeah, um, it is. It's very different, um, but I I really love it. I enjoyed it. Um, I didn't think it was going to be as fluid as I ended up being. You know, I was, I was expecting it to be a little rougher at the start, but it definitely wasn't. Um, I think the coaching staff um, and the, the medical, the whole staff. I'm not, I'm not going to separate them. The whole staff was able to um, put together a group of guys um, so quickly. Uh, and such a such an efficient group of guys to be able to understand each other so rapidly and and perform. Uh, so that's something that was maybe that did surprise me, um, but it was it's a positive. So it's a good surprise. It's a good thing at the end of the day. So, so Nico, I don't I don't want to try and. S- spoil the special sauce with what this team has success with but from an outsider's perspective watching the games it does really feel like SC has this suffocating style of soccer down to a T from a player's perspective how difficult is that to just continue that suffocating style you know um, maintenance is uh, always the most expensive part of any purchase let's say this is (laughs) like that Um, but um, we train for that every day. Um, you know, we're, we're going to um, need to manage, obviously, uh, player timing and and um, and yeah, basically timing of, of each player and how much time they spend on the field because it is it is hard. It is hard, um, but it's successful. So we keep going. We keep going. If we have a problem, we'll correct it. Um, that's I think that's the best way to explain it. We're talking to Nico Joachine here on 101 ESPN, St. Louis City SC striker. Uh, Nico, your story is really interesting. You, you grew up in Kansas City. You move over to Italy. Then you play in France. You had some time in Maryland as well. You, you've done a lot of moving uh, for soccer. How did that prepare you at all, if you think that it may have, 
for what you're doing right now, where you have so many different people from different backgrounds that are all kind of blending in with this St. Louis City SC team? Is Do you think that helped prepare you for an experience like this? Yes, um, I think this, you know, moving, um, especially from country to country, um, more so from state to state, because, you know, any, at the end of the day, anywhere you go, you learn. Um, so it, it taught me to listen, to listen a lot and to speak less, uh, because listening is a skill that um, is, very, I think, underestimated. Uh, so it's something that my parents, especially my mom, has instilled in me. So uh, everywhere I go, I, I listen and I learn. Um, and the more you do that, it's something that carries on for the rest of your life and you learn to respect more and to be more patient because not everywhere is the same. So, you know, it's, it's moving around did help me culturally, um, you know, bring patience to my game and to my daily life. It's something that I recommend to every every living being um, is to travel, is to learn, is to, to listen. Um, so, yeah. Nico, you played in Italy early on in your life, 8 to 12 years old, I think, if I'm not mistaken, and then you go over to France around the high school time. Do you speak fluent Italian and, and fluent French at this point, and did you whenever you moved over there? I do speak. I'm fluent in, in three languages, yes, English, Italian, and French. Uh, I, what I um, didn't know was Italian and French when I moved there. Um when I moved to Italy when I was eight, uh, and my dad is Italian naturally, but we didn't have the language down very well. I know I know a couple words here and there, but that's about it. Uh, French, no, not at all. I'd taken about a year in school here in, uh, actually in Maryland, um, but I just knew the, 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 the croissant, the bonjour, and the, <laughs> the that's as far as it went. Um, but, you know, I, I got there, I learned it, the accent and everything, so it's benefiting now, I guess, to be able to speak to a guy like Azil Jackson, who, who speaks fluent French as well. So, um, you know, it's a skill that I've learned and that I, I appreciate. All right, Nico. So now I got to know, have you gone to the Hill yet here in St. Louis? And have you tried some Italian food? And what's the favorite? <laughs> I've, I've been to one Italian restaurant. I've been to Casa de Malfonso. Um, but uh, it was delicious. But besides that, I have not... Um, I've not explored further out, but I will, I will do that as the season goes on. Understandably. We're going to have to get you back on. You, you me, and BK are going to have yeah. to have our daily Italian food talks because there's a ton <laughs> of spots we need you to go check out. We'll do a series together, oh, Nico. We know. can go check out all the restaurants over on <laughs> yeah. the hill. We need to do a sit-down <laughs> with sure, Nico. Let me know. <laughs> have you tried St. Louis-style pizza yet, Nico? I'm just curious. I mean, I would imagine you had a lot of good pizza over in Italy. Have, have you compared that to St. Louis-style at all? I have not. I have not. You know, matter of fact, I should probably try that. Um, and I will, I will let you guys know what I do. <laughs> the expectations, I just know up front. It's very Come different. On, don't put him in a spot like this. He's got a new fan base. Don't make him choose. I'm sure he's going to love it. I just want to make sure that maybe the first bite is not on video. So he's got some time to get his proper evaluation done, you know, for the people here in St. Louis. <laughs> I'm I'm confident it's delicious. I'm confident. <laughs> that away, Nico. You got it down, Nico. I, I, final question <laughs> that I've got for you, and we yeah. thank you so much for for joining us here this morning. Uh, as somebody that was born in KC in the Midwest, what is it like for you to now be able to to suit up for City and to be a prominent player on a team in its inaugural city here in the Midwest? It's an honor. Um, I was following how the club was being founded, and um, 
it's an it's really great you know i'm i'm back to where i was born you know the funny thing is that in life you never know so that's what i just tell everyone you never know you never know life is funny like that so you know i'm back here in the midwest i've traveled the world and is playing for uh, a team that has just started so it's an honor um it's humbling it's humbling and it's something that uh, as soon as i saw i was drafted i was more than happy to look forward to um so uh, yeah, just keep going and keep doing our thing. Nico, we wish you all the best the rest of this season, man. We got to catch up again soon. I want to hear some travel stories and Absolutely. we got to get uh, some, some food critiques from you as well as we go along here in this season. We'll be watching from afar and wishing you guys nothing but the best. Super. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, it was wonderful speaking to you. Absolutely. It's great to catch up. That's Nico Joachini here on 101 ESPN. Really appreciate his time. Uh, a, a super interesting character and a heck of a player so far for St. Louis City SC at his first MLS goal over the weekend for City. I'm serious about this. It's going to be a BK and Ferrario with Nico food taste test. We're going we're gonna to travel around St. Louis and just start pulling out some Italian dishes. I, I feel like there's a few that we could probably go through, and 99% of them Alex has been to. So I, oh, yeah. I don't think there is a show that is more prepared to do this than our show <laughs> this is. is. This is what I was born for. That's what also, I think of. Let's be honest. Nobody takes more vacations than us. Very Nico, true. Clearly a big <laughs> travel guy. I think that this is a natural, natural fit. Yeah, this I, was this was a natural play. I, I do think we should we should try to get Nico in studio one of these days. We'll we'll do like thirty minutes with Nico and in I'm gonna studio. Drive up, go get myself a hot salami sandwich from Joya's for him. There we and go. There's our first video. I love it. Boom. We could get his Chiefs take. He's from Kansas City. KC guy, Italian guy. I would imagine Tanner he was good to at travel. table tennis once. I, I bet he likes hot dogs. <laughs> Come on, man. You heard him say, like, you got to take care of our bodies. Man. Oh. As, yeah, as somebody who's work. lived in France, Italy, I, I'm not so sure he's a big hot dog guy. He essentially just told well, us fact, our bodies well, are temples, and he's not going to destroy that temple with a hot dog. Yeah, you're right. We probably we probably shouldn't give him a hot. Dog. No, no, no. Bradley Carnell would not recommend. But we'll that. take him to like good Italian, like Olive Garden, right? Oh my God, you sir, love me some Olive Garden. Yeah, great. Spot. Love me some Olive Garden. I will say, as a chain, pretty good Italian. I worked there once upon a time. It, like Thank genuinely you. good Italian. All right, so we're taking him there. <laughs> First Alex, stop. Alex just gave me a death ga- death glare, unlike anything that I have ever seen from him, and. Yeah. Alex has been pretty mad at me a time or two before. Coming last four up, days haven't gone in your favor, buddy. <laughs> Coming up here in about 15 minutes, we'll talk to Katie Wu. She's the Cardinals insider for the Athletic Live from Jupiter. Want to get her thoughts on what's going on with Paul DeYoung right now. Who could end up taking his roster spot if he's not able to start on opening day? And What's the bullpen construction going to look like to start out the season? We'll talk about all of that with Katie coming up in about 15 minutes. 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line for questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text 314-399-9646. BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with carltoninsurance.net. 
399-9646 is the air comfort service text line for questions and answers. We'll get to Katie Wu coming up here in about 10 minutes or so. Cardinals insider for the athletic and now with KSDK. Let's start with this from the 314. Guys, have Vrana and Kapanen been good enough to be top nine forwards on a legitimate cup contender? I know it's early, but would you go as far as to say they might be legitimate top six forwards that the Blues were able to acquire? I'm not there yet on legit cup contender because neither of those guys could crack a lineup in the top six with a cup contending team. Verona with Washington, he was more of a third, fourth line player. Uh, and then Kapanen, of course, with Pittsburgh, wasn't able to crack that top six. So, Verona would be the one for me that I'd say at best is a top nine if this team is a legit cup contender, mostly because of the defensive deficiencies. But maybe Craig Berube can work with that and make him a little bit more of a well-rounded player. Kapanen would be the one that I'd say if his offense continues to to go in the direction that it is right now, his defense plays in the top six for you. Um, it really just depends on what you're getting out of him on a night-to-night basis. You know what plays for uh, Jakub Verona? Offense, baby. Scoring oh, goals. Speed. Oh, well, speed, speed too, especially like, if this team is doing it. I know that a lot of people will probably make something of his lack of defense, and there's some truth to that. He's not very good defensively. But honestly, he's yeah. been he has not been a liability since he's been with St. Louis. There's gonna be moments. Like it'll look bad sometimes, but guess what? He scored five goals and has six points in his six games. He's a plus one on the ice. I'll take that, that place. <laughs> like I'll I, take that. I will take that any day of the week. He is a natural born goal scorer. And you need those guys on your roster, man. If you've got two or three of them, you can make that work. You can get them on different lines in your top nine. So whether he is a top six player or a top nine player, I want him on my team. And the same thing is true for Kappen. And I saw JR mentioned this the other day. I can't remember if it was in his story or just on Twitter. I think Kapanen is a really good hockey player. I don't know what happened with him in Pittsburgh. I can't explain it. I didn't watch him while he was in Pittsburgh very he often. He fell out of favor with here. his coach. That it was just, the problem. It didn't work, and he clearly needed a fresh start. And I don't know how long this can sustain, but that dude's been great for the Blues so far. Can, can I add a question here to questions and answers? Please. No, why would you do does, that? Does Kapanen remind you, and not the oh, full effect go. of this player, here does he remind go. you a little bit of David Perron? Because I see some goal scoring. I see the full uh, play in the length of the ice. He hits. He throws his body around. It's also I, a puck possession player yeah, where I, he's just like constantly I, I'm not on saying the puck. He the is shot's Perron. not there he, with Perron. Like he Verona reminds me a little bit Perron. of him. He reminds me a little bit the of him. The play, absolutely. And the puck possession. You know what I do love about Kapanen that Perron really didn't have? Uh, he goes to the front of the net. Yeah. That goal that he scored, the first one last night. That was solely him standing in front of the net and Nick Letty making that pass to Kapanen How to tip in. How long have we been waiting for somebody to do exactly that? You know, you know who he plays like? Go watch Zach Hyman play with the Edmonton Oilers. Now, Hyman's more of a bully in terms of going to the front of the net than Kapanen. Kapanen is a perimeter player, but he knows where the goals are at. His hat trick that he scored against the Blues when he was with Pittsburgh, all three were in front of the net off of rebound chances and tips. Like, he does look a little like Zach Hyman, but in terms of overall play of hitting guys, yeah, David Perron is absolutely there. Yeah, I think he's he's a really solid player. That's the way that I would describe him. It's just like he's got a, a pretty high-quality all-around game right now. We'll see if that sustains. It is, like the texter said, super early. And all of this you have to take with a grain of salt because I'm sure there's a jolt of energy for anybody that's kind of on their last legs. They're getting a a second lease on life and trying to prove that they're worthy of. I mean, they've got a lot of money on the line. That's the other thing with Verona and Kapanen. 
if they play well over the course of the next calendar year for the Blues, they're going to get a pretty nice size contract for whether it's here or elsewhere on the next deal that they end up signing. It's worth monitoring for that alone. Absolutely. All right, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Guys, was there a moment this weekend that got you up out of your seat, either in a good way or a bad way, while you were watching all of the sports that were oh, taking place? I got one. Oral Roberts. So no, no, no. <laughs> it wasn't over the weekend, man. <laughs> that I've, was that was bad enough to where it might every, still have carried every, over. Every day rolls together right now. So I had a nice little parlay down that I laid while we were in Alton, Illinois. Okay, three of the legs hit. Memphis called a timeout, officials. I had him on the money line. It was about a $200 winner on my parlay. Officials don't give it to him. FAU goes on to win. The parlay's dead because the officials were blind. The three blind mice were out there on the court, and they didn't call a timeout. That got me out of my chair. Fairly Dickinson. That was it. I, I mean, for them to... Fairly Dickinson what? For them, the, the win. I mean, oh, they, the they took down a number one seed. I, I was... I was shocked when UMBC was able to take down Virginia. This almost to me was more impressive because they were better. Like they just were better than Purdue the entire game. And the other thing was like it had so many subplots to it. Early Dickinson coach coming out after the first four game and saying, hey, I don't want Purdue to see this. After watching film, I think we can beat that team. And then them going out and doing it. They were the smallest team in the country this year. Purdue was the biggest team in the country this year. And Fairleigh Dickinson was able to do it. That took me up out of my seat. So that, that was the one that immediately uh, stands out in my mind. And then I would also add, we just saw some really high-level basketball played this weekend. Uh, both TCU games were super fun. The KU game against Arkansas was really fun to watch. Didn't see that one coming, to say the least. I thought Arkansas would lose in the first round. Uh, for at least a half, Duke versus Tennessee was a lot of fun. Tennessee, that was as impressed as I've been with them all season long. And then the K-State versus Kentucky game was super entertaining to watch if you guys were able to see any of that. So those those were the ones that came to mind. And then one thing I haven't mentioned yet is Trey Turner's Grand Slam. That was, I think, arguably the best moment that came out of the weekend. I, I was jumping up and down because of that. That was a huge moment. Yeah, so. may not have been jumping up and down, but man, Wayno getting out of that first inning. <laughs> that was a pretty big moment for me. Oh, yeah, I... Watching Wayno awesome. in that first inning, and he wasn't hit hard. He was killed no. softly. But that was one of those where I was like, oh, boy, if he can't get out, if he has yeah. to be pulled after inning two, they said on the broadcast USA had like four pitchers available. When, it would have been brutal. When Arenado threw him out from third at home, and then he got that next pop-up, I wanted to jump out of my seat. That was awesome. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Final question here from the 314. Guys, if Team USA had a football team, who would be your starting quarterback, running back, and number one wide receiver? Patrick Mahomes is starting for us at quarterback. There is no argument to Devontae be made there. Adams We don't have to worry about that. Devontae Adams is probably my number one wide receiver. You think so? Over Justin Jefferson? I was thinking Justin oh, Jefferson yeah. for me. I, I would go A.J. Brown, personally. I thought A.J. Brown, but... It's one of those three. Yeah. Those are your starters. Like, that's our starting. Yeah, no running back. We'll just take three. three wide receivers. And then we'll put Brown at running Christian back. McCaffrey. Yeah, we're going to be throwing it a lot. We're not going to be a power running team. Yeah. I would go Christian McCaffrey as our starting running back. I think that's our I agree. I think that's our starting lineup. And the Travis Kelsey at tight end. We're all good with that. Yeah. I'd take cool. that guy. We're going to win. Can I substitute my quarterback out for AJ McCarron? Absolutely. Oh, yikes. That, uh, that last interception was not ideal. Whoa, we don't need that, man. Coming up next, Katie Wu, Cardinals Insider for The Athletic here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.
ESPN. Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. We're going out to Jupiter, Florida. We're Katie Wu, our Cardinals insider and for the athletic and KSDK is joining us here on the show. Katie, we appreciate the time as always. How are you doing today? I am well, gentlemen. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Are we getting bathroom yeah, hot we, takes are we today or are we in a, a, a typical room for you this time around? Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually not in Jupiter. I'm not with the team right now. I am uh, coming to you live from my living room in St. Louis, where it is very cold here. Yeah, yeah bad um, mistake by you. Welcome back, Katie. That. All right, well, we're going to need you to go into the bathroom and do a Katie Wu bathroom hot takes this segment, though. So, Katie, bring it on. I'm ready. What What's going on with Paul DeYoung? I know you're not. I I, I know you're not down there to get the quotes from um, Ollie Marmol, but I would assume you saw the same ones as we did this morning. It sounds like whether it's a setback or he's just not progressing as expected. There's real question on whether or not he's going to make the opening day roster or if he'll start the year on the IL. What does this mean for him, and what does it mean for the Cardinals in your mind? Yeah, you know, some tough news again for Paulie D coming into spring. This, as you guys know, this was supposed to be a big spring for Paul in terms of playing time. He was supposed to see a ton of reps, not just at shortstop, but around the infield with all of these guys gone for the WBC. That has not been the case with the various set of setbacks and injuries. Um, again, not with the team today, but I did talk to some people close to Paul and his camp. And, you know, it just kind of seems to be that the back is such a, a tricky thing, especially when you uh, have revamped your swing, when you're playing a ton of positions. So, not quite sure what the future looks like for Paul right now. We're in our final week of spring training games. Time flies and we're having fun, right, guys? <laughs> uh, so there really, even if he was healthy, was not a big ramp for him to go out and prove himself. And it's disappointing. I mean, it's disappointing for Paul. It's disappointing for the organization that seemed really convicted in the changes Paul had made this offseason. Usually, and I know that we've heard this before about optimism around Paul DeYoung, but in, in seasons prior, the optimism was about Paul, how the organization believed Paul had made the changes, that Paul had figured something out. This offseason, the optimism and the hope was around the changes that Paul had made. And to me, that was a huge difference in why this organization was still optimistic about Paul DeYoung and what he could do. It's been so unfortunate for both sides that he has really not been ha- uh, had the chance to prove it. So not quite sure what this means. Uh, a big thing for Paul DeYoung's value was that he was pretty much the uh, – most stable, serviceable backup shortstop behind Tommy Edmond. But there are guys like Brendan Donovan, of course, who can fill in there. Taylor Motter can play short in a pinch. There are options, but certainly not ideal for both sides, both for the Cardinals and Pauly D. So, could we see him Wally pipped here, Katie, in terms of potential DFA? Or do you think there's another path for the Cardinals to where that it's the injured list or maybe it's designate him for assignment or not that um, get a rehab assignment before so they could still keep that option open? Yeah, you know, I think if Paulie uh, does end up on the IL, of course, you know, a lot can change in the next 10 days. But if he does start the season there, it kind of, it's, it's a benefit in hindsight to both, organ- to both parts of the organization, right? The Cardinals have kind of a longer ramp to see what he could do. He'll have a rehab assignment. He can get ramped up on his own speed. And they can really see if those changes came to fruition. And for Paul, of course, you never want to start the season not 100% healthy. And you certainly don't want to start it on the IL. But that would allow him the same luxury, right? He would have the same amount of time to take it slow. I mean, if I, I know the initial plan was for Paul to return to game action tomorrow. It does not sound like that's going to be the case, but that would only leave him six games 
to really prove something. And that is a lot for a a player of any kind of capacity or capability to try to do. So we will see. But again, you know, a tough break again for Paul DeYoung. Who do you think stands to gain the most from that? If he does end up starting the season on the IL, is there a player that might end up making this roster that otherwise would not have? Yeah, you know, I'd go with Taylor Motter, and I'm not saying that he's not going to make the roster uh, if Paul did. I think that there's still a pretty heavy competition for the right-handed bat between him and Juan Yepes, and Taylor Motter has some versatility defensively. We've seen that this spring. He can kind of play all over the infield. I don't know what it is about the Cardinals, who find these players out of nowhere that can kind of just play everywhere and it fits so well to what they're doing, but it's a, it's a heavy camp. It's a competitive camp. We know this there's position battles seemingly all over the place and no clear front runner because everyone more or less has performed up to expectations. Um, I think Taylor Motter has really impressed though. And if the Cardinals are down an infield at the start of the season, that's who I would look at as being a possible replacement. Did I hear that right, Katie? That there's some competition for Juan Yepes's DH spot? There is competition everywhere, you guys. You should have seen this roster projection. I'm not kidding. I just said I did for the athletic. It took like seven or eight tries. It was so hard. <laughs> well, if that is indeed the case, Katie, what does that say more about Motter and what he's done in camp, or does it show that there's been a little disappointment in what we've seen from Juan Yepes so far in camp? I wouldn't necessarily say it's disappointment from Juan Yepes. I think that the Cardinals know what they're getting in him. They have this like young, great talent. Everyone likes to be around him in the clubhouse. And he's a bat-first guy. Uh, they know that. That's what his expectation is. The defense is going to come second. They've actually, Ollie Marmol has talked multiple times about how impressed uh, he's been that Juan Yepes is taking that defense so seriously. But they know that Juan's, his really prized tool is the bat. So, We'll see. It's really complicated when you bring in, when you just think about what Yepes can do on his own, then you start bringing guys like Jordan Walker, Taylor Motter in. And it's a good problem to have, right, when there seems to be all these pretty solid, serviceable options. Um, but for Yepes, I think it's just a matter of can he keep hitting, can he still show that power? The defense is always going to be secondary when it comes to evaluating him. Katie Wu is our guest here on 101 ESPN. You can find that roster projection over at The Athletic right now. You can also follow her on Twitter at Katie J. Wu. Uh, Katie, continuing with the, the questions on the roster projection that you had, I think the bullpen is like nearly impossible to be able to figure out right now. It's really tough. There's like two or three spots that are just tough to call, honestly. The way that you see it today, you had as your the most likely guys that are going to be on the roster, two locks basically, Giovanni Gallegos and Ryan Helsley, and then you had five guys that you you think are going to be there with Hicks, Palante, Stratton, Wilking, Rodriguez, and Drew Verhagen. As you looked at the guys that are kind of fighting for those final spots, who do you think is a part of that competition, and who do you think ends up winning out based on what you know today? As for part of the competition... Um, I'd go with everybody. It is it, this, the relief uh, pitcher projection. I think that you can make an argument for anyone that's been left off and anyone that's been, that's on, right? Like this is, and this is like a great problem for the Cardinals to have. I think we saw a lot of slack over the off season on why they didn't add uh, to the bullpen. And at the time, I feel like that was probably a little justified and warranted. But now we're seeing what they thought that they had in camp and those, at the time, minor upgrades that they either traded or signed for. And it looks like the bullpen is actually in really good shape. I think the the most difficult thing to nail down is the left-handed pitching. So in the names you mentioned, BK, there's all right-handers. But I think it's important that we note that Andre Pallante, for all intents and purposes, 
is considered a left-hander. Even though he throws right-handed, the Cardinals plan on using him like he is a left-handed reliever because of his reverse splits. So technically, there's seven right-handed pitchers right there, but it's really six and one. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay. So then we have a slew of left-handers in Zach Thompson, Packy Naughton, Jojo Romero. We have Andrew Suarez, who I think has been a little bit under the radar. There's a ton of guys here. And you can, Genesis Cabrera, see, I'm already forgetting guys as I'm going down my list. <laughs> and you can make the argument for every single one. Now, I think you can, you know, there is no right or wrong bullpen if you go with these guys. So I think if you're looking at this from a front office perspective, you're going to play the contracts, which is why I have Stratton, Verhagen, and Wilkin Rodriguez in there because they all have the contractual obligations, but also for the most part, they've looked pretty good. Drew Verhagen's had an excellent spring, both in performance and in data. And that leaves one spot really. You can again you can make the argument for any of the left handers. I'd go with Zach Thompson though. He's just had a really, really nice spring. Velocity's up, curveball looks great. That's my guy. Um, but the good news is relievers are kind of treated like carousels, right? So just because one reliever is not on the opening day roster doesn't mean we won't see him. Chances are we'll probably see him in two to three weeks. So, so, Katie, the part that I still can't wrap my head around, though, is who the other, the third high leverage arm is. And I've heard a ton of people say that Drew Verhagen is probably that guy. Can you try and ease some of my doubt with Drew Verhagen? Because I know that the numbers work well, but I felt like we said that in spring training last year, and then all of a sudden it just disappeared. We did. We did, and it did. Um, so that's, that's I'm not, I am uh, valid, validating your concerns here, but... Good. Um, I think one thing to note about Drew Verhagen that I think is probably a big difference in his performance, that he's healthy. That hip injury that he had last year, that hip impingement that he ultimately had surgery on, he believes, and so does the organization, believes that it really hindered his performance. It really impacted his velocity. It really impacted basically everything in his arsenal. Now that he's healthy, the spin rates, the pitch profile, the pitch makeup, all of those things that the Cardinals analyzed beyond the box score looks pretty much exactly to what the Cardinals believe they were getting when they signed for him last offseason. So health really plays a, uh, plays an important part here, and I think that's what we're seeing with Verhagen to start. Katie, we'll get you out of here on this. We, you mentioned we're in the final week of spring training. Is there anything in particular with the Cardinals that has changed your feeling about them this season based on what you saw while you were down in Jupiter? Do you notice anything that you, you thought one thing going in and now you think something different? Big picture about this St. Louis Cardinals team. Well, that's a good question. You know, I will say I have been really pleasantly surprised by the offense. Um, when you look at who they signed, obviously when bringing in Wilson Contreras, you know that's a boost to the offense. But there are some guys that took some major steps over the offseason into the spring on just becoming a more complete offensive player. Brendan Donovan, we've talked about the power. Nolan Gorman looks like a brand-new player. Um, and Dylan Carlson, minus the high strikeout rate this spring, has had a really good spring. And, I mean, the Cardinals emphasize they wanted to see that power from the left side. They're more or less getting that. And the high strikeout rate often accompanies guys. They're trying to build power anyway. I think, and we haven't seen a lot of Tyler O'Neill. I'm sure we will. Certainly look good in the World Baseball Classic. When you're looking at these guys all around, you look at Lars Newbar, what he's done for Team Japan, I think the offense for this team is a little bit underrated. And I, for one, am excited to see how this lineup is put together and how Ollie Marmol uses each part in a different place because I think this could be one of the, I'm ready for this to come back and bite me, I'm already prepared. But I think this could be one of the most impressive offensive Cardinals teams we've seen in a while.
I said uh, during the offseason, top five offense in baseball, potential to be the best offense but, in, in the major leagues. But Katie, you just gave Look us a hot that. Katie, you just gave us a hot take and you're not in the bathroom. Like what are we doing <laughs> oh, here? I didn't even end oh my gosh, I didn't even like build it up. I no. should have done that. That's you know why? That's because I don't think it's a hot take, actually. I just genuinely believe in it. Boom. That's what I'm talking Backed about. It up Katie. To, that's Katie Wu, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. Work over at the Athletic. That's where you can find her roster projections. She she is now also doing some work with KSDK. Huge congratulations for multimedia. Oh, Look at her. Star. Oh, Katie Wu. (laughs) Look at her. Katie, appreciate the time as always. We'll talk with you again next week as we are officially entering the start of the regular season for the Cardinals this year. How about that? You'd love to see it. Oh, my gosh. Thanks, guys. I will see you at Media Day, I'm assuming, in about a little more than a week. That's right. That's that's right. We'll see you out there. She's Katie Wu, Cardinals insider for The Athletic, our friend, and now doing work for KSDK as well. Follow her on Twitter, at Katie J. Wu. She's about to go big time. Hopefully she doesn't forget us when she she goes big time. Oh, she will. Yeah. Everybody does, let's yeah. be honest. Jamie was a colleague of ours, and now he's just doing his stuff on the fast lane. He's doing oh. Bally Sports stuff, and he, we he just, doesn't care about Are we just anymore. a stepping stone for everybody? Of course. Man. Can't course. wait till I make it big, and, T- and I can credit T-Bone. Yeah, that's what you're going to do, huh? Yeah, I'll credit T-Bone. Okay. Hey, Thanks, man, T-Bone. You, you stick by me, we'll get you. Oh, see. We'll you get make you somewhere. that fearless leader comment crap, and then you just ruin it for everyone. Coming up next, the NCAA tournament quick hitters. Who was the biggest surprise from the weekend, the most disappointing performance, and the one that you thought you should have seen coming, but you just did it. We'll talk about it all coming up next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. What a weekend it was in the NCAA tournament. Only 16 remain. We still have a 15 seed in Princeton. We've got a nine seed in FAU. We nearly had a 16 seed in Fairleigh Dickinson. It's been a lot of fun so far. It will continue to be fun as we get into the Sweet 16 later on this week with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's dive into some of our quick takeaways from the weekend that was, Alex. For you, What was the biggest surprise? You can take this in any direction that you would like, but the biggest surprise for you from the weekend was what? Oh, Roberts wasn't better than I thought they were. All right. Well, other than that, okay. Uh, Arkansas. I thought Arkansas was going to get just destroyed by Kansas. And maybe that was the bill self effect of not having him on the sideline. T-Bone, you referenced this Thursday of him not being around was going to impact. And then I watched him defeat Howard and think, nope, no worries. Uh, but Arkansas surprised the hell out of me. I don't know what's going to take place with them in UConn. Uh, UConn was a little bit more of a surprise than I expected, but I did not see this Arkansas team that barely beat Mizzou when they played earlier in the season. At least it felt that way. Yep. Uh, I mean, they have an opportunity to go to the Elite Eight, which is just absurd. I, I think the biggest surprise for me, and, and it feels kind of chalk, was the Princeton upsets. Like, I watched them. I turned to BK five minutes into that game when we were in Alton on Thursday. When they were playing Arizona, and I said, they've got no chance. Arizona's way more athletic. They just stand around on offense. They don't look athletic. I, there's no way they get past it. And then they beat Arizona. And then I said, okay, well. It beat them handily, by the way. Yeah. And then I said, there's no shot they beat Missouri. Missouri's athletic. They're going to force turnovers. And Princeton just took it to the Missouri Tigers. So they're by far the easiest surprise for me. The other one is Michigan State. Never count out Tom Izzo in March. Michigan State is dancing into the Sweet 16. And don't be shocked if they continue to make a run. I could see them easily beating Kansas State. Every year, dude. Every year I underestimate what they are going to do at Michigan State. And every year 
he shoves it in my face. It's on me. At some point, it's on me. It's not on them. It's on me for not believing in what Tom Izzo is able to accomplish. Uh, My biggest surprise was Princeton, but other than that, it was Tennessee just looking amazing against Duke. Now, some of this is Duke's probably a little overrated. I thought in the East, we knew this going in, right? All of us knew if there's going to be a region that completely shreds your bracket, it's going to be the East region because I thought Purdue was a little overrated and I didn't know what to realistically expect out of a Shaka Smart team as a two seed. When you got a one and a two that you don't really believe in, man, it leaves a lot to the imagination in terms of what the rest of the region could end up looking like. And what we have is FAU, Tennessee, Kansas State and Michigan State that remain in that in that region. And I think Tennessee has a real chance to be able to come out of it. I was not impressed with them all season long. They relied so heavily on their defense to be able to win games, but they were just, it was a clinic what they did against Duke over the weekend. So that was the biggest surprise in a positive direction for me. What was the most disappointing uh, performance for you, T-Bone? We'll start with you. Most disappointing performance over the weekend was what? And I say this not because they're one of my final four that's out, but it's Marquette. I I thought Marquette was better than than what they showed against Michigan State. It, I felt like Shaka Smart got outcoached and outcoached big time by Tom Izzo. Now, granted, it is Tom Izzo, a legend, so partly understand it, but I, I thought they were the best team in that region. I, I thought they were going to coast through the East because I didn't trust Purdue. Clearly fair. Uh, but I, I thought they could get out of the East and they would have it easily. Defensively, I thought they were the best team in that region. I thought offensively they could carry the load enough to where they could have rely on the defense to get them to the Final Four. And then they just came out there and you know what happened? They don't. They don't show up. Michigan State outplays them for forty minutes and goes on to win that game. So I have two of them. Part of me was disappointed with Fairleigh Dickinson. What? I know because I wanted that team to keep going. Like you take I down. Mean, they played really well. I know they did it, but like they had the exact same stats as Florida Atlantic. And I'm thinking like you just missed the opportunity. It was a couple of turnovers late. But the one that I would probably go with was most disappointing for me would be Penn State. I thought Penn State had what what it took to get through Texas, and they played them close also. But man, the shooting just just disappeared for Penn State, specifically in the second half. So they would be the ones that would be disappointing. And I didn't have them going deeper than where they ended. But after watching them just take down Texas A and M, who I thought was going to be much better, uh, I, I thought Penn State had a little bit more magic. In yeah, them. mine's Kansas. Uh, the, the most surprising for you is the most disappointing for me. I couldn't believe the way that Kansas played in that game. I just thought they were they looked like they were going through the motions for half of the game. Now, foul trouble ended up coming into it. Not having Bill Self, I think, was a really big part of it. They got clearly coached, especially in the second half of that game. They just lost their cool. Like they, they they didn't play with any sort of poise down the stretch. So I would say Kansas was my biggest disappointment. I just didn't I didn't see that coming against Arkansas. I know Arkansas is talented all year long. That was a team that underperformed. And they've got like six dudes they trust. If you get them into foul trouble at all, that's a team that you should be able to beat. I didn't think they had any chance. Clearly they did. KU losing in that game outright was a big surprise and a huge disappointment uh, from my perspective. The performance that you feel like you should have seen coming, but for some reason you just didn't. We mentioned it a little bit earlier. For me, it's Michigan State. Should have seen it coming, dude. Tom Izzo does this every single year. Every year we underestimate his team, and I feel like his best ones are the ones that come in with a chip on their shoulder where they're like, 
not in the top four seed going into the NCAA tournament. They've gained momentum throughout the year. This Michigan State team going to the Sweet 16 shouldn't have surprised any of us. And yet, for some reason, for me, it did. Now, um, I'm about to say this. There was a lot of hatred when I put together this bracket for the team that I had losing in the second round. Um, I should have saw Gonzaga coming. I mean, as much as I dislike Drew Timmy, that man, that man can drag a team to the extra to the next round. And that's what he did. That's what he did down the stretch of that game. He was he he completely dominated when they needed a bucket late that game. You you look at the final score. It's 84 81. There was a point in time where Gonzaga was up by about 10 with like two or three minutes to go. He pulled them away and allowed them to be able to coast to victory. I should have saw it coming, but I didn't. And I think there was just hatred involved with that pick. I shouldn't have bought stock in Duke. I, I knew it. Should've I told to myself me. not to you. Uh, but I, I should have known they wouldn't get past Tennessee. I, I bought into stock. I had them get into the Elite Eight and then losing to Marquette. I should have known. When you get hot in the ACC tournament in a down year, it doesn't mean you're going to be hot in March. The only team left dancing in the ACC is Miami, Florida, which nobody Oof. saw coming. But I, I convinced myself that Duke was going to go on a run. When honestly, if I would look back on it, I could have said, you know what? They're going to lose to Tennessee. I should have seen it coming. That's the region though, right? Like that, that's what played into it. What played into it was everybody was trying to look for their team that wasn't a top two seed in the East. And so many people just defaulted to Duke because it's Duke. What we should have done was default to the team that's actually been better than Duke all year, which is Tennessee or K-State or going to the trustworthy Michigan State. We just picked the wrong squad. We all knew what to do there. We just went to the wrong squad, and that's where we went awry. That's what happens when you overthink it. The next question that I've got for you guys, the team that now has the most advantageous run to the Final Four, I'll kick things off, it's Alabama. Alabama's remaining run to the Final Four will include San Diego State in the Sweet 16, and then either Creighton or Princeton. I think Creighton will get into the Elite Eight. They are the better team. They are a team that is good both offensively and defensively. It's really the first time that Princeton's seen that kind of a profile so far in the tournament. Uh, For all of what we loved about Mizzou, not exactly a great defensive team, and we all knew that. I think Creighton will move on, but I think that's the most advantageous run to the Final Four for me. It's Alabama. Alex, who is it for you? Alabama would have been in mind, but to go different, Gonzaga. And they got a tough matchup in UCLA, but we all said before the the bracket started that UCLA had the injuries to deal with, and you just really weren't too sure. If Gonzaga can wipe the floor with UCLA, I don't see how the winner of Arkansas-UConn... UConn, dude, watch out for them. They they look amazing right now. They looked awesome against St. Mary's. I get it, but... Gonzaga looks awesome too. So that's sure. why it's like, I, I feel like whoever comes out of that, and I can obviously absolutely see Arkansas for some reason, they get this magic continuing take down UConn. So Gonzaga would be my second answer to Alabama. Yeah. Alabama is the clear one for me, but I, I kind of agree with Alex. I, I look at that region and I would, I would say the Zags have a very tough test to get out of that. I think UCLA is not going to be easy. I thought they were going to get bounced in the second round. And for all the flaws that Arkansas has, they have the guys out of where they can muck up a game and find a way to get past you. So I think it's either Alabama or the Zags. I will be at that Elite Eight game between hopefully Gonzaga and UConn. That is what I'm rooting for. So fingers crossed. I'll be there in Vegas this weekend. All right, final thing here. If you could redo your bracket today, (laughs) which I know that Alex would love to do. (laughs) You know my answer. (laughs) Who would you pick today as your (laughs) national championship and who would you have winning? My national championship was Alabama versus 
Uh, I don't even remember who I had. I, I tore it up. Oral so. Roberts. No, it wasn't Oral Roberts. It was Alabama. I, I don't know if I would change that, but maybe I would shift the Kansas one out of mine. Well, I would hope so, considering they're gone. He's right. I, I would take that out, too. You know I would what? recommend not you know having what? Kansas win at all when they lost in the I'd second also, round of the tournament. I'd also take out Oral Roberts in mind going <laughs> yeah, all the way to the idea. Final Four. That might have been smart. Who would you have winning at all? Alabama. Alabama. Yeah, I, I wouldn't change much, honestly. The only one I would change, of course, would be Marquette. They're the one Final Four team I've lost. I actually would probably take Kansas State now to get there. Ooh. But, I, yeah, I, I think they get past Michigan State, and I, I think they'll get past Tennessee or FAU. I the I still stick with Alabama though and Gonzaga. That was who I had originally as my championship, and they've done nothing to disappoint. Alabama has dominated their first two games. I think they're going to coast through San Diego State, and then Creighton might give them a test. I just think they're still the well-rounded team. And Gonzaga, as we just talked about, Drew Timmy can get them to the championship, and their offense is so freaking good. I have I had Gonzaga versus Alabama in the national championship game. I think I would still keep it that way. I, I am not as confident in Gonzaga right now, though, as, as Alex is. I do think that they have the toughest path to the national championship that remains of the teams that most people would be considering. In oh, I, I think the toughest path is potentially Houston, too. We didn't talk much about them. That's Miami, I don't think Miami will test yeah. them. Whoever comes out of Xavier in Texas, good luck, because those teams have been playing really well. And I had that on the bracket. I had Texas and Houston meeting in the uh, of the um, the final four, and Honestly, I'm with you. I thought Houston was going to be able to walk away with that. But after watching them play the last few games, I think Texas could make that a competition. I if they always get there. say this. You love having the upsets in the first round. By the time we get to the Elite Eight or so, that's where you want your best teams to be remaining. And I think we've got a pretty good chance to be able to have some really good Elite Eight matchups. If you end up getting... Tennessee versus either K-State or Michigan State. That's going to be a fun game to watch, man. Any of the remaining potential games in the West, I think, will be a lot of fun. Those teams all have a lot of talent remaining. Houston versus one of Xavier versus Texas is going to be awesome. And then Alabama versus Creighton is what I'm really rooting for. I think that has a chance to be a really good game. I know nobody, like, really talks about Creighton because it is a mid-major program. Dude, they were great all year long this year. They were outstanding. So we've got a chance for some really great Elite Eight and Final Four games down the stretch. This is what you root for. Big-time upsets and then the big-time programs there at the end. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll dive into the junk drawer. But next, Paul DeYoung is seriously at risk of making the Cardinals opening day roster, not based on performance at this point, but based on an injury. Who's going to make it instead of him? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. And of course, the faster pace as that one is launched. Goodbye. Taylor Motter with a line drive home run. I can't believe we're having a real discussion about Taylor Motter on March 20th, but here we are. That audio courtesy of Bally Sports Midwest with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. Taylor Motter has taken advantage of his spring training opportunity here with the St. Louis Cardinals. And as so often happens, it is taking place at the same time while Paul DeYoung is not currently playing. He is on the injured side of things. He's got a back issue that has prevented him from getting back onto the field. And the update today from Derek Gould is this. 
Paul DeYoung is delayed as he is continuing to experience a sore back. He is questionable now for opening day. A plan is being put together this afternoon to see when a return would be possible for spring spring games or if it will be possible. Alex, this is where the editorializing comes in. If it is not possible for him to be able to make it back during spring games, the overwhelming likelihood is he starts the season on the injured list. If that ends up being the case, you have a roster spot that is now up for grabs on the opening day roster. Now, it is worth noting, this is basically the 26th man. This guy will, if he doesn't play well, be replaced within the first two weeks of the season or so. Like This could be up and down. Uh, this this is where the carousel really takes place on the roster. In your mind, is Taylor Motter the one that is most likely to end up with that spot, or is there somebody else that comes to mind? Look at for Tanner you? smirk right now. Look at Tanner just I sitting only, over here. I only brought him up on my Twitter account at Tebow one hundred and one ESPN on March. 3rd. Smash that like button, right? Smash T-Bone? that like button and hit that follow button too. Here's that. Th- here's the thing. I don't think Taylor Motter should be the 26th man. That's just cruel. But I think he will because there's nobody else that can do what Taylor Motter does in terms of being a utility player that could play everywhere on the field. He's playing first base today. He's going to get opportunities at shortstop, I would imagine, in spring training. Second base, you could put him there. You could probably throw him at third base. He could be an outfielder for all you want. Now, do I want a guy whose career batting average is 191? And if you want to go the slugging route, yeah, maybe he could hit you a home run. He's got 10 of them, and it's his career. But... People will argue, we'll put Alec Burleson on the roster. Well, Alec Burleson's an outfielder slash DH, maybe a first baseman I think for that you. is the decision point for what it's worth. And the other thing is Alec Burleson, although he's gotten a little bit better, he's not doing the best in spring training. That deserves him an opportunity on this roster. So if I'm, if I'm going to go a 26th man, I'll go a guy who has been a journeyman through his major league career who's 32 years old, who's not going to waver from being in the – in the lineup or in the field once every seven days over a 24-year-old who I'd rather get more reps in the outfield. So, yeah, I, I think Taylor Motter should get that final spot. Yeah, I, I think it is going to be Motter. J- just the way he's played, he's looked good at every position. He made a really nice play over the weekend at third base to help turn a double play. So I, I think when you look at the versatility that he brings, I think it's going to be the biggest factor in br- putting him on the roster. Again, he's probably only going to play once a week. But you can put him anywhere. He can play third. He's at first today. Short, second, we've seen him. He's looked pretty good at all those positions. And his bat has played, too, to where it it has overtaken Alec Burleson. Now, granted, it does sound like the Cardinals, of course, they're not looking at the numbers. They're looking at all the other stuff, like, you know, his exit velo, stuff like that. The Cardinals don't seem to be thinking, based on how I've read the comments from Ali Marmol, that Burleson's having an awful spring because it sounds like he still is hitting the ball hard and he's just running into bad luck, which he ran into last year. But I I think when you look at Motter... He's going to be able to play all four infield positions, and you're going to have four outfielders already to where you probably don't need that fifth one. So I I think right now, yes, he is the guy that makes the roster, and I think it's just as simple as because Walker's going to take that 40th uh, 40-man spot that's open right now, I would assume. And then I think the simple thing is, okay, you brought Jose Fermin in. Fermin didn't perform already down in the minor league camp. Probably DFA Fermin to create room for Taylor Motter. Yeah, Taylor Motter is basically John Nagowski, but who can play all over the place. Right. That That's who he is as a player. He's, he's an older guy uh, that is a journeyman in his major league slash minor league career. If you look at some of the peripherals that – He's had moments down in the minors where it's like, hey, man, there's something here. He doesn't strike out a lot. He gets on base a decent amount. Like you said, Alex, based on what he's done so far in the big leagues, he he does have some real power. And if he shows the versatility to be able to play all over the diamond and he can play, you know, a little bit of shortstop, but more likely than not, first and third, 
sure, go ahead and bring him to the to the major league with you. And the reason why you do this is because, and somebody on our text line makes this point, guys, somebody has to say it, you don't care if he doesn't play. Yeah, yep, that's true. Like, if Taylor Motter ends up making this roster, somebody's got to sit the bench. And Motter's going to be the guy. I don't mean that to be, like, some sort of a diss on Taylor Motter, but, dude, that guy's just going to be thrilled to be a part of an opening day roster in the big leagues. Meanwhile, with Alec Burleson, I want him to get opportunities. I want him to see regular at-bats because he's a legitimate top 100 prospect in Major League Baseball right now. So do I want that dude just sitting on my bench riding the pine every day? Or does it make more sense for him to go down to the minors and get everyday opportunities? I think the latter makes more sense for him. If he was crushing it in spring training, maybe he would find a way to work his way into that DH mix and then we're having a different conversation. He's not. I say all the time, spring training does not matter. However, if you're in the middle of a competition, those results do matter for you as to whether or not you're going to get the first opportunity. We're going to see Alec Burleson at some point this year. He's going to make this roster, just not on opening day. I think, and I can't believe that I'm saying this, Taylor Motter is the one that's going to end up being the beneficiary if Paul DeYoung doesn't make the opening day roster. And this is how I look at it, too. He's going to make the roster because DeYoung's going to be on the injured list to start the season. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he's healthy and after he goes through his rehab assignments in Memphis, Taylor Motter will be DFA'd or gone through waivers or whatever it is, and Paul Unless DeYoung will be activated. he plays really well. The only scen- I, I do think there's a scenario here where Paul DeYoung gets Wally Pipped. I think it's real because if Taylor Motter ends up giving them the pop that they're looking for off of the bench as a right-handed bench bat, and I don't know if he's going to get the opportunities to do so, but if for whatever reason he does and he performs... I think this is the kind of staff right now that is in place in St. Louis that will say, you know what, DeYoung, go down on your rehab assignment. If that doesn't go particularly well and Motter is still playing well at the big league level, I think Motter ends up earning that spot. Until Motter starts to falter and then Paul DeYoung will be back up. But DeYoung will be DFA'd at that point see, and DeYoung's gone. And I just don't see them doing that. I, I don't. I think they might. I don't because they're gonna they'll value when he's healthy the defense that he provides and I don't think they'll view Motter as somebody who can play shortstop. We'll see. And that like that's how I view it right now. As of today, if you had to, if you had to say, BK, what's actually going to happen? Gun to my head, I would say Taylor Motter makes the opening day roster if DeYoung's on the IL. He gets two weeks, maybe three weeks on this roster, potentially even less if he doesn't perform. And then when DeYoung is back ready to go healthy, DeYoung takes that roster spot, Motter is sent down, and that's the way that it ends up going. And DeYoung gets happen. one final chance to be able to really make his impact on this roster. That would be my guess. But... If this goes a different kind of way and what we're seeing in spring training is real and Motter does actually perform and then DeYoung goes down, he gets on his rehab assignment and it goes poorly the way that it has so far for him in spring training. I do think there is a scenario, even if unrealistic, where the Cardinals say results eventually have to matter. We have got a guy right now that is performing better than Paul DeYoung. And whether that means a DFA or a potential trade where they just basically send him somewhere where he's going to get regular playing time, I could see that scenario playing out even if I do believe it to be unlikely. And to that point, if Motter plays well and DeYoung either struggles on the rehab assignment or just Motter clearly has won that opportunity, how much value does that defense carry for Paul DeYoung? Because it's not like Tommy Edmond is Johnny Peralta at shortstop. You need a defensive replacement late in games for him. Same with Donovan. Gorman looks better at second base. And then if we're only talking about him probably playing one day a week, well, how much does that defense really prop up his value? In my opinion, it really doesn't because you can get away with Donovan at short for one game and you're not going to be bringing in a defensive substitution for Tommy Edmond at short. So I think the defense, though it is 
it is the best trait for Paul DeYoung. I'm not sure how much value it truly carries to keep him on the roster when you're looking at it if Taylor Motter performs really well. At some point, it's going to come down to his bat. And to your point, BK, I agree with you. I think the Cardinals with Ali Marmol's staff would say, sorry, results. it's a result-driven business, and right now we just haven't seen it. We're going to have to go our separate ways. So what you're saying is results matter. Oh. You know that was good. Yeah, that was well done. Thanks, buddy. That was well done. Tanner can get the hell out of here. On that one. I do think a lot of this comes down to their comfortability, if there is any at least, with Motter and or Donovan at shortstop. If they view those guys as being legitimate options for them in a pinch, I'm not saying starting regularly, because if I do believe this to be true, by the way, if Tommy Edmond had a long-term injury, I think they would call up Mason Wynn. I think agreed. he is That's your agreed. everyday shortstop. Injury, you're calling somebody up. I think so, too. And I think that that man is is Mason Wynn, and we'll see what that ends up looking like. But in a pinch, one maybe once a week, something like that, if they're comfortable with De, or, uh, Donovan and or Motter as a starting shortstop, that's where I think it really starts to get dicey for, for Paul DeYoung. Because then his spot on the roster is, to your point, T-Bone, there's no value there. Your defense doesn't then matter, and then your bat has fallen behind all of the other guys that we're talking about, and now you've just got better options that are available to you. Coming up next, we're at the Junk Drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in. Carry out. Seven days a week. So, guys, SoFi Stadium is... uh, It's an outdoor stadium as long as it or an indoor stadium as long as it doesn't rain and then they have to delay their games. Yeah. If you're not familiar with it, SoFi Stadium is uh, supposed to be one of the host sites for the World Cup here in the not too distant future. Unfortunately, that might not be taking place. Did you guys see this story over the weekend? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. According to Times of London, SoFi Stadium may be unable to host the ultimate soccer match in 2026 because the field isn't wide enough to get it to where they need it to be. They would need to remove seats from the stadium. Unfortunately for SoFi, that would reduce the maximum capacity of the stadium below the minimum threshold for FIFA of 80,000. So in other words, This stadium that was just built, just constructed over the last few years and was built in part for events like the World Cup may not be able to host the event that it was essentially built to be able to host because they didn't make it wide enough. After all of the hundreds of millions of dollars that they had in overcharges for this stadium, all of the things that have gone awry, including one of their first games getting delayed because of rain. Can you imagine if Los Angeles is not able to host one of the events in the world because of a few feet not being able to make it wide enough for this stage? Can you imagine? Good. Oh, my God. I hope they got to tear it down and rebuild it because it's not wide enough. That'll be expensive. I, 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 One, I'm confused how if they wanted the World Cup here, 
how LA didn't build yeah, it properly. Like, and two, if you're you... the planners of the World Cup and you're going, okay, we're going through all the stadium selections, shouldn't you know that before you select it to be a host venue? it was at the time, right? Wasn't, weren't they still in the process of constructing I SoFi? Was, I, I thought it was built because I thought they announced the stadiums like a yeah, year ago. But what if it, and at but, that point, I mean, the Rams were playing here. But if your intentions are to use it for things like that, don't you think you do the proper measurements before it's built? You would think so. You would think that you would say, okay, what are the big events that we need to be able to host here? Right. Like, what are now the biggest? Now let's look at the, the necessary requirements for those events. What are the capacity? What does the stadium need to look like? What are some of the, like, the fine print in any of these events that we need to be sure to have in the back of our minds? One of the first ones that I would imagine you would look to is, hey, the United States is hosting the World Cup in 2026. What do we need to do to make sure that we're good? We check all of the boxes off, right? Apparently, Stan Kroenke was like, ah, no big deal. I just host, I I own a team overseas. And I'm sure everything will be fine. Nice. There's no way that FIFA's going to look into this. Everything will be okay. Unbelievable for that to take place. We'll see where this ends up going. Maybe this is just FIFA trying to use some sort of leverage play. I, I don't know what they're trying really to get sure out of this. I'm not really sure what you're going leverage play on that, but okay. I don't know, but this is wild to say the least. All right, the final thing that I wanted to get to today uh, in the junk drawer. Do you guys see how much March Madness is costing employers in terms of productivity while it's on te- television? No. It was a lot. March Madness, according to a, a new report that came out over the weekend, is costing employers an estimated $17 billion in productivity. Nice. Because of how much people are just watching television throughout the day while they are on the clock at work. As much as I think the day after the Super Bowl should be considered a national holiday, and I genuinely believe that to be the case. I think the Thursday and Friday of the NCAA tournament should be as well. Agreed. I think we've got to find a way, at least Friday. Like Thursday, okay, Friday maybe. Was rough for us. I, yeah, agreed. Different reason. Um, kind of the same. I think that you should be able to take off of work. It's like a banked holiday. You, you, you could choose not to use it, but I think anybody that would like to should get Thursday and Friday off if they please. That's the way to do it. Make it a make it an option. like Because there's probably people that could care less about the March Madness start of it all, but the other people, you're right. I, I mean, there's the exact same thing as the Super Bowl. Like, don't expect anything out of it. The same with, like, classes. Like, when you get high school age, I was useless for that Thursday and Friday. Oh, we brought in, do you remember they would wheel in the yeah. television during the school day? It because was great. Because they knew that, like, nobody was going to be paying attention because we used to sit there, like, before. Well, you're we, a teacher, too. You're like, I don't want to teach today. We've got plenty of time for that. We, had a, we, we had a professor at the end of the day who was, like, it was a science class, and he would be, like, updating everybody on the ESPN, like, scores because he knew nobody was going to pay attention to zoology at that time of the day. You learned about zoology. Well, I went for zoology. Oh, interesting. Learned more about college basketball <laughs> sure. Thursday and Friday of March Madness. I feel like if you're a math teacher, you should be teaching about lines, the betting lines. Yeah, that's smart. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the kind of everyday the, stuff that people we need to know. We can learn about percentages. Yeah. What are the odds of a team winning when the line is X, Y, or Z? Work on win probability. 
prob- probability. If you're, if you're still working on if it. You're a geometry, I'll go to English class during if it. If you're okay? a geometry professor, you need to be talking about, like, you know, the uh, the curve of basketball shots and how of that course. plays into three-point shooting. The sight lines that exist in a dome, like a, a massive stadium versus a typical arena. That's what I'm saying here. This is kind of education you're not getting. Teachers, listen up. The probability of making a three-point shot and why that is more important than a mid-range jumper. I mean, there's so many different things that you could learn in school but instead what we should probably do is just not have those kids going to school probably just have them stay home just be easier it's a snow day and for you parents that are wondering like hey what am i supposed to do you're off too watch it's a it. holiday watch it. it's just like christmas yeah snow everybody's off i like it technically it is christmas really i mean this weekend was amazing I, did you guys have the moment, though, where you felt overwhelmed? Saturday night, I genuinely felt like it was too much. No, where I was like, I, I can't watch all of this. I don't this get is too much. very often. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I do I do have anxiety when I feel like I'm not able to like keep up with everything that's taking place. And on Saturday, I definitely oh, felt okay. like so that was last night with when the World Baseball Classic, college basketball. Yeah. Actually, it was also Saturday, so we too. We had like yes. assignments. So like BK watches this. Mm-hmm. You watch that. I'll watch this. Yeah, and we Battle Hawks. City. NCAA tournament action. WBC. WBC all taking place at the exact same time. I was like, I don't have enough screens for this. <laughs> I don't have enough screens. I only got two. I only have my I phone. I need more. I only have my phone. I'm telling you, it's too much. Coming up okay. in about have 15 minutes. Thanks, man. <laughs> the expectations are officially changing for St. Louis City SC. But next, Jordan Montgomery is a big-time player for the Cardinals. Where does he fall on our 20 most important players list? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. season on PK and Ferrario. Number seven, Jordan Montgomery. Swing and a miss. He struck him out. Seven tonight for Montgomery. Round ball right side. Albert Montgomery. Ball game. Cardinals win it. What a way to finish it. And a one nothing complete game shutout for Montgomery. His first ever in the big leagues. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. We continue our countdown of the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2023 season with number seven on our list. It is Jordan Montgomery. I had him all the way at number six on my list. Tanner had him at seven. Alex hates Jordan Montgomery. He had him at number 10 on his list. Give him a contract extension. Of the 20 most important Cardinals for 2023. There's nine other players that are more important to this team. Do find it interesting. We all had him right in that mix of like the middle of the rotation. We had him ahead of Tommy Edmond, Tyler O'Neill, Lars Newtbar, Dylan Carlson, Nolan Gorman. Those are some important players for the Cardinals going into this season. Alex, I think the reason why is because of the question that I'm about to ask you. What's the best case scenario look like for Jordan Montgomery in 2023? He's your one-two punch. In terms of people that have said this season, you need two guys to say, oh, bleep, we have to face him. Best case scenario for Jordan Montgomery is he's that number two to Jack Flaherty. And we saw in the second half when he was acquired, he was that guy. It felt like you were thinking, man, I got to go up against Jordan Montgomery. Where did this guy come from? The swing and miss stuff goes up. Now, this has not been a good spring training for him. It has been 
frankly brutal. And I wonder if part of that is because of not having Yadier Molina to throw to because he pitched to Yadier a majority of his starts in the regular season last year. But best case scenario for him is the second half of what he did last year with the Cardinals in terms of high strikeout rate, you're giving innings, and you become that legit number two to Jack Flaherty. Yeah, I, I think the upside is close to what Alex said there, to where it is going to be. He is your number two. And I he goes right there with Jack Flaherty. He bumps up his swing and miss just a little bit, maybe gets that strikeouts per nine up to like nine, ten maybe. And you're looking at a guy that's going to be that number two and pitching well from the left side. Now, I if I can be honest for a second, I I was buying into, you know, Dusty Blake going to fine-tune his stuff and get add that more swing and miss. I think if I were to kind of redo my list now, I think I would put Matt's above where Jordan Montgomery is because I think Matt's has more swing and miss. And I kind of fell into the hype around what was surrounding uh, Montgomery from the end of last year up until spring training. And that's not saying that Montgomery is going to take a big step back. I think he's going to be really good. But I think the ceiling is, can he get to becoming a legit number two in a rotation? I don't know, but that's definitely his ceiling. And if he's going to become that legit number two, that swing and miss stuff has to come up just a little bit. I think the ceiling, the best case scenario is just what he was last year for the Cardinals. I think it's that simple, man. He was awesome for the Cardinals after they were able to trade for him last year. You look at the overall numbers, they jump off the page, a 3.1 ERA and 11 starts. He was able to give you 63 innings. Now you look at when he's been healthy in the big leagues. The crazy thing is that's kind of who he's been. In 2022, you look at the full season, 32 starts, gave you 180 innings with a 3.5 ERA. 2021, 30 starts, 160 innings with a 3.8 ERA. You go back to the last time that he was really fully healthy before that in a regular season. It was 2017. He did have some injuries that really took place there in the middle portions. 29 starts, 160 innings, 3.8 ERA. This guy's a really solid middle of the rotation starter when he's been healthy in the big leagues. I think the best case scenario for you is that he's a legitimate number three. And the reason why I say that is because I think even at his best, you'd like that guy, given what the National League is right now, to go up against other number three starters around the league. But if you go into like a wild card series again, for example, he starts that winner win or go home game. I think you feel okay about that with Jordan Montgomery in a best case scenario. The worst case scenario, though, is that he reverts back to some of the bad habits that he's had at times in his past where he doesn't have quite the same swing and miss stuff. Uh, He starts giving up more contact than you are otherwise hoping. One issue that he had at times was giving up the long ball, not so much in New York, but at times when he was on the road, does that become an issue for him this year? I would bet against it. I don't think that's going to be a problem for Jordan Montgomery, especially while he's playing at Bush stadium. I think he's going to be fine. Alex, you mentioned the spring training stats. Uh, looking those, looking at his stats in spring training, it, it's it's weird. It's basically just a couple of bad hits that he gave up. Right. He gave up a home run, and otherwise he's been pretty decent. Like It's not like he's getting hit around. And he's not walking anybody either. He's given up eight hits and one walk in seven innings, and somehow he's got an eight ERA. Yeah. Go ahead and fi- uh, fix that riddle for me. It's tough. Well, and that's why it's spring training numbers. And that's why you just can't read into I'm it. I'm not super worried about that at all. He's been throwing strikes. He's at like a 65% strike rate so far. It, he's not giving up too much hard contact. I think Jordan Montgomery's fine. What's the worst case scenario for you in your mind? Probably the walks and the hits. And just in terms of he just gets into tight spots that he can't get himself out of. If the strikeout is not working for him and you're looking at a guy because he did have that at times with the Cardinals last year where first couple of guys get on base and you're thinking, how's he going to get out of this? And then boom, strikeout, boom, double play. Jordan Montgomery walk into the dugout with ease. 
the worst case scenario is he does look like what he's looking like in spring training where guys are just making good t- contact with him. They're seeing his pitches easily. And when the hits are given up, then he starts to get shaky and can't rebound with a strikeout, put him down pitch. And then the walks start to pick up because he's had those problems in the past. That would be my worst case scenario for Jordan Montgomery. I think the worst case scenario for me is just he doesn't take that next step because I think no matter what, he's going to be a really good starter for you. And maybe it is in that kind of three, four that we're talking about. But I I think the disappointing part for him would be that all this talk in the offseason of, hey, Dusty Blakeson, come in here and he's going to look at it and he's going to add some more swing and miss to Jordan Montgomery. And it just doesn't amount to it. And it just he stays as a three, four because I don't I can't envision him having a bad year if he's healthy. He deals with injuries, sure, anything can happen. I think so, too. But if he's if he doesn't add that swing and miss, it would be a little bit disappointing. And I think that's the thing that determines, as much as we've talked about who do you extend because the Cardinals only have one starting pitcher under contract, I think that will be the biggest thing that determines how long he remains here in St. Louis. I mean, Louis. when you look at his numbers throughout his career, I mean, it's it's the way it goes with hitters also. Like, the back, the back of the baseball card says exactly what it is, and he's trending always in his career around eight or nine strikeouts per nine innings. Yeah. He's been a really good player. Um, he's at number seven on our list of the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2023 season. As we continue with the pitching uh, for just another moment here, uh, we talk a lot about Jordan Montgomery. We talk a lot about Jack Flaherty. Uh, Michaelis has been okay up and down a little bit in the World Baseball Classic. I, I am a little concerned about him not getting fully stretched out yet. That is something that I think is worth monitoring early in the season, and it's one of the reasons why I think Jake Woodford uh, should be on the opening day roster. We don't talk a lot about Steven Matz. I was listening to um, the best podcast in baseball over the weekend, and it was Tom Ackerman with Derek Gould. I, th- I think it's worth your time if you're a Cardinals fan to listen to this. And they were talking about what the key to the season is. And Tom Ackerman, I I thought, said something really interesting. We talk so much about, hey, this season will go as Jack Flaherty goes. He said, I I agree. I think that's true. said, I also think that there's another player, though, that we don't put into that mix enough. And it's Steven Matz. And the reason why is because he said, we we saw what this rotation looked like last year with most of these guys in it. But what we didn't see really was what they look like when Jack Flaherty and Steven Matz are at the top of their game for a full season. That's the difference this year is you do have those two players available. And if we're being totally honest, those are the two guys with the most swing and miss stuff currently in your rotation. So I, I thought it was interesting where, how we put Matt's into that conversation. We, we talk about Flaherty as being the guiding principle for this team. Does Steven Matt's deserve to be a part of that conversation as well? I'm not there yet with him because I think what you said about Steve uh, Jordan Montgomery, his best case scenario is he's a number three for your rotation. That would be Steven Matz, in my opinion. And I understand he was injured last year, and that is a perfectly acceptable argument. But at the beginning of the season, he wasn't. And there was a lot of inconsistency with Steven Matz. I mean, his first start, I remember it. He barely got through three innings. He gave up a ton of runs. And then in the stretch of May, before the injury kicked in, you'd have a start where he'd go six and scoreless. And then another start where he'd go three and give up five runs. And three of those runs were home runs. So... I'm just not there yet with Steven Matz, and I know he was healthy and a really dominant picture pitcher with the New York Mets, but to say that he's going to be one of those guiding pieces for this Cardinals team, I'm just not there yet because when he was healthy last year, it was way too inconsistent. I, I think he could be that guy that takes that number two role. And again, it, it, I think part of what Tom Ackerman said there in the podcast is kind of what I fell kind of victim to, where it was like, okay, I didn't see him a lot, and then I saw him out of the bullpen, and then you kind of forget about him. And he has... Unlike some pitchers where it's like, hey, this guy, he's known for strikeouts. 
Mats has been known as a ground ball pitcher and can just eat innings. He's never really talked about as a strikeout guy. When he was a starter last year, he had the best strikeout percentage at 27.4 among starters that pitched for the Cardinals. So I, I think when you look at Steven Matz, he does kind of fly under the radar. But yeah, I could see where he ends up being that number two guy. And we saw last year when he came back, not from the uh, arm issue, but after he recovered from the knee issue, he had electric stuff out of the bullpen. Now he'll probably bring that down a little bit as he tries to cover more innings. But I definitely saw the signs of a guy that, you know what, yeah, I could see where he ends up being that guy that has the more swing and miss than Montgomery and can provide that to this pitching staff as a potential number two. And if he ends up being that, I mean, it does take a little bit of pressure on some of these other guys. Like You go into the season, and for what's worth, by the way, Steven Matz has been excellent so far in spring training. He's thrown 12 innings and has an ERA below two. Now, again, spring training, I don't want to make too much of it. But Everything matters. He's... He's doing a good job with the strikeout rate being up. Nobody's getting good contact off of him, and he's preventing runs at an extremely high level. So that's a nice sign so far. You go into the regular season, if Montgomery, who we were just talking about, and Steven Matz end up taking a step forward, even if there is a bit of a step back, especially early in the season for Wayno and Michaelis, that could end up replicating some of what you were missing from them. So I think Steven Matz is one of the players that he's like the X factor where we talk about this during the regular season a lot, who's the guy that is the X factor for the Cardinals? I think for the rotation, it's Steven Matz. Because nobody talks about him. And he could finish the season as a legit top three starter, and I don't think it should shock anybody. Coming up next, the expectations are officially real for St. Louis City SC. We'll discuss it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. That's what it sounded like on Apple TV on Saturday night as St. Louis City SC becomes the first MLS expansion team to start 4-0 in the history of MLS. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Alex, the expectations are finally real, in my opinion. I thought Saturday was the validation of that yet again. Now, we got a text earlier today, 314-399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line that said, hey guys, take into account, City is not going up against the best opponents right now. I don't give a bleep. They're beating them. Whoa. They're 4-0. and Was that a factual statement from the texter? Sure. It was. What a jerk. <laughs> Some of these teams aren't very good, specifically San Jose. What They're a not jerk. a very good team. Oh, the Quakers. Not just the, the earthquakes. But the Quakers. No, don't think that's correct. Um, it's plural of earthquake. I don't care who they're going up against. The expectation when you are an expansion team is that you're going to hit some struggles early on in the season. So much so that every other team that has ever been an expansion team in the MLS has done exactly that at some point in their first four games. Regardless of opponent, City looks real. Like the, the style of play, the quality of their play so far, if you're looking at their set pieces, if you're just looking at the way that they're able to consistently impose their will on a game where the game seems to be played in all four of the first four matches at their tempo, at their pace, I think it's time to start talking about this team no longer as just a, hey, it's fun. I enjoy going out and watching them. That is still all true. 
it's start actually time to like break down. Can this team really be this year? If you're 4-0-0 to start the season and you're at the top of the standings, you're the only team that can say that, man, th- this might actually be a playoff team in year one of their existence, which is crazy, dude. I cannot overstate how unbelievable that would potentially be. It absolutely should be a conversation piece because, yeah, you could sit there and say that, well, they haven't played against the top competitions in MLS. Sure, but when you look at the Western Conference, they've scored 11 goals through four games. The next closest is L.A., who has scored seven and three. So maybe they get close to that. But on the Eastern Conference side, Atlanta is the only other team that's right there with them that scored that many goals. So what's the narrative of looking at just those short sample size of the standings? This team has a lot of offense in them. And then you get the the the, uh, the final score of Roman Berkey pitching the shutout. That is an impressive feat for this team because at the first match of the season, we were all talking about that's going to be their weak spot, the defense and giving up those goals. Well, they've improved upon that. You have to start talking playoffs with this team. And I understand it's a long season and it's a tough way to play, blah, blah, blah. But we just talked with Nico back in the 11 o'clock hour. And I think he painted a perfect picture of what this team's mentality is. It's been a long process. It's been a process that we've been working towards to get to this point. And now you're starting to see the fruits of the labor. And when you reap those benefits, you continue to perform at that level. So I will be very interested when they face off against the LA team or Atlanta later on in the season. But for right now, this is the schedule you're given, and you're looking like a team that deserves to be in postseason at the start of it. Yeah, and, and let's not take anything away from that win against Austin. Austin was a very trendy pick to be one of the best in the Western Conference, and that was the very first ever game that they went on, on the, the road, road. and yeah. won that game. So there's that. And then also to me, I don't know about you guys, but the game against Portland felt like one of those games where they didn't they got kind of away from that high press. Portland felt like they handled it well. And it felt like one of those games where it's like, okay, City hasn't been able to dictate the style of this game. So are they going to really be able to go on the road and beat the Portland Timbers? And to their credit, they did. And not only did they win, I remember correctly, they came back from down one nothing to win. So they've shown already some adversity and they dealt with injuries in the last game where Parker was out. So yes, I understand part of it is, well, look at the schedule. They haven't played anybody good. They've dealt with some adversity throughout some of those games already, too, and they've got a quality win against Austin. So I, I think they're the way they play, if they can get into their system and continue that high press, they're going to be able to take down some of the teams at the top of the table. I think their style is kind of taking the league by storm because there's not a lot of teams, if any teams, that are really trying to replicate it. And the way that they can do it, you can see the pressure. It's 90 minutes of hell, and St. Louis City SC has continued to press even the 80th minute of games, bringing on fresh legs to try and suppress the scoring and get that offense into the uh, the offensive third. And they're just taking advantage of their goal-scoring opportunities, and Klaus is doing a nice job of finishing for them. It's also worth noting... San Jose was 2-0-1 prior to playing against City. Now they're 2-0-2 as a result of losing to City. Austin, they don't play City 2-0-1 so far this year. They did have to play City. Some of the reason why these teams are lower in the standings than what you would expect them to be potentially, because they had to go up against St. Louis City. And if they continue to play the way that they have so far, yeah, a lot of the teams that are going up against them will end up having, especially early on in the season, a worse record than you would expect because they have that loss on their record against City. That's how this works with the head-to-head stuff. So I'm going to give them the credit that they deserve. So far this year, they have been so much better than I could have possibly expected them to be. My expectations were basically zero going into the year. I, I thought if you get a couple of wins early on in the season, you start out like, you get a couple of draws, you get a win here. That's fine. The expectations don't exist in year one, nor should they. 
and then they won that first game. I was like, okay, this is better than I expected, especially on the road against a team like Austin. But I was like, okay, how much of this was just the early season um, excitement? You're on the field for the pitch for the first time as a new team. And then game two is like, okay, well, you're at home. How much of this is just the crowd really kind of taking it to you? And Charlotte wasn't very good. Um, and they were pulled into the fight with Charlotte as well. There were ex- reasons to say, okay, I don't know how real this is. The last two games have been confirmation in my mind of what we saw in the first two games being real, not just being because of what was a new team that was thrown together. I, I think it's real now, and I, I think the expectations are something that we should carry with them. It's no longer just a team that we're excited about. Now it's a team that you should be getting behind. Now it's a team that you can have real expectations for down the stretch. And this upcoming weekend, as they take on Salt Lake, this is a game that I expect them to win. I, I think they should go on the road and win. The elevation is something that's very real, but this is this is a game that you should be able to win. So this might be an odd question, but I'm a newbie when it comes to MLS. You know how, you know, around trade deadline time, maybe even prior to that in hockey or in baseball, after you po- post all-star break, that's when you start talking like, okay, who are the playoff teams and who are the pretenders? I know soccer season goes to late October. Is that around the same time that like hockey season where once you get into January, February, you start talking who are the pretenders and who are the contenders? Like sixty percent of the way through a season, whether regardless of no matter what, I think that that's the way in in football too. Is you get right around Thanksgiving and you start really being able to tell who the the legitimate contenders are. So, what do you think? Like mid July, late July, kind of similar to the the baseball season. So once you hit like late July is when you get into that tail end of once you start to get to the fall season. Maybe it's a couple weeks earlier than, yeah. than what you'd say in the and baseball I just, season. And I just don't know because maybe maybe MLS separates themselves a lot more than what baseball does. If you just got a few teams that are the real deal and then others are just trendy picks to try and get into the postseason. I I would probably say it would be July. I, I think there will you will see some teams that will kind of separate themselves, especially when you're looking at the top of the uh, supporter shield. Uh, but I, I think... I think there will be probably two to three teams that will really separate themselves, and we'll see if City becomes one of those teams. I I, I would still be skeptical of that. I still think they're going to be probably a top four to five team in the West, but we'll see if how the style continues and if it ends up separating them as being like one of the actual top dogs in the MLS. Yeah, I mean, right now, if you're just looking at the table, you've got City at the top, but then, I mean, a few teams that as a casual, casual, casual viewer of MLS, you know you expect to be pretty good annually. Uh, L.A. and Seattle are, right. are two of those teams, and they're right behind you right now. So I think the expectation would be that eventually those teams either surpass you or are right there with you. You play Seattle in two weeks. I, I think that's going to be a really telling game. Yeah, That'll be when we kind of see City against a team that you know is going to be a contender this year. Um, so that that would be where you probably start to learn a little bit more about this squad in, in a like very real sense. Um, so that's probably the game that you would point to. But like I said, I, I think later on this season, m- maybe early to mid July is, right. is probably what I'm you're a really noob, guys. To. I'm a noob. Three one four. 399-9646 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Coming up next, we'll play a game of in or out. I want to ask you guys if you're in or out on the World Baseball Classic after everything we've seen. We'll talk about it next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with PK and Ferrario. 
614-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line for in or out guys let's start with this in or out the world baseball classic has become a marquee event even for those in the united states after what we witnessed over the weekend marquee event i'm out on but i'm in on it being a pretty significant event for me i was not in on it with the play-in started and it was the pool play uh it wasn't of interest to me now i am fully engulfed in world baseball classic last night i think officially got me in uh, i mentioned wayno getting me a little excited getting out of that first inning but then you just get the offense now you're starting to see the talent on that lineup um i am fully invested now for this next matchup in the championship game for the world baseball classic i, I think i'm out on it because i'm not sure it's still going to become marquee here in the states uh, to be honest with you, I kind of I'm a big baseball fan. I'm kind of in and out on it, just depending on the day. But I, I think it's getting there. I it may be another tournament or two before I think we're at that point. But I don't think we're there yet. Is it because your favorite team, Great Britain, was bounced? No, but I was upset about that. I understand, buddy. No, I to me it's the pitching restrictions kind of takes away, makes it feel still like spring training, which in that kind of tournament with those kind of atmospheres kind of feels like a disappointment. I'm in because the players are telling us that they are in. And we'll see what this ends up meaning for the next iteration of the World Baseball Classic, what that looks like and how they treat it, especially from a managerial perspective, to your point there, T-Bone. But reading some of the quotes from the weekend from the Team USA players was really enlightening, I thought. So Adam Adovino was talking about this. He said, Brady Singer was asking me what the playoffs were like. I was like, I don't even know if they're quite like this. That was the best atmosphere I've ever been a part of. It was so much fun to be a part of that, even if we would have lost. Then JT Romuto was asked about it. He said, I can't believe anybody would rather stay in spring training than play in a game like this. So much pride on the line, so much fun. It was clear to both teams how much that game meant. Trey Turner said that grand slam that he hit was the biggest home run that he's ever hit in his major league career. Adam Wainwright said that it was the loudest environment that he's ever been a part of. And that was no shot to St. Louis. It's just saying I've, I've never yeah. been a part of anything like that. And he's played in the World Series. Um, the same thing was true for Paul Goldschmidt. He said, you can't believe that other superstars aren't a part of this. Nolan Arenado spoke to it. And when the best players in the world are talking about how special this is, and it's not just canned answers, they're like kind of taken aback by it all. I think that eventually it has to become a legitimate marquee event for all of us because they're treating it as if it's a marquee event. Alex, what do you have for in or out? Boys, in or out. Doug Armstrong did a top three general manager job at the trade deadline of any team in the NHL. And I think he already put himself in a position where he had the best offseason of any general manager, barring something unforeseen, oh, yeah. based on what he was able to do at the trade deadline. They will be the most intriguing team in the offseason for what Doug Armstrong accomplishes. I think, I'm, I think I'm out. I, I love the move of Rana and I love the move to get Kapanen. And I think it kind of leans more towards the offseason for me because the Blues just aren't going anywhere in this this season. I, I When I look at the Eastern Conference and how those teams loaded up, I have to give those GMs credit. Toronto did a great job. Now, yes, O'Reilly is out. Uh, I, I look at the Rangers. I mean, they basically built an all-star team out there in New York. I, I think some of those Eastern Conference teams deserve more credit than Doug Armstrong, but that's not saying Army did a bad job because I think he did a hell of a job with the returns he got. And these pieces of Kapanen and Verana, I think they are more of kind of fixing issues that he would have had to solve in the offseason. So I, I think I'm out, but I do think it was probably 
top seven, I would say, in terms of what the GMs did. See, I, I'm in. I said top three because Boston's number one. I think Boston did the best job of any general manager out there in terms of loading up the right way. And then I would have Tampa Bay as number two because they made the right move that they were desperate for. I'd have Doug three because I think Doug did a better job for the long-term future of his team than what Toronto did. And I think he did a better long-term future job of what he did than what the New York Rangers general manager did. Those two teams did this season work. And you should when you're going for the postseason. But even Doug, when he was doing this season work, he stayed pat rather than sat there and sold off assets to get Verona and Kapanen. And then the draft picks that they got, he set himself up to be GM of the year by next season, depending on what he does in the offseason. So th- go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm curious, how many players have more goals scored than um, Blay and Verana and Kapanen combined? Since <laughs> March 9th, Van Verana. He has in I that know he's stretch, got more five goals. I know he's got more than Kane and Tarasenko because neither of them have that. The only player in the NHL since March 9th with more goals scored than Jakub Vrana is Clayton Keller. Only player in the entire NHL. No, we should have got other Keller. guys with at least five goals include Zabinijed, uh Kreider, my guy, of course, uh, CK, uh, Reinhardt, Jordan Cairo, Jesper Bratt, and Matt Boldy, who just had a hat trick the other day. But again. None of those guys were the ones acquired in the trade deadlines. He's doing pretty well. T-Bone, what you got? Mine kind of deals with offseason, but I'm going NFL. In or out, Cowboys have had the best offseason in the NFL and are going to win the NFC East. Ooh, that's a good one. Best offseason in the Quiet NFL. Brandon Cooks either yesterday or earlier today. Yeah. It's kind of blending Gilmore. together. Uh, yeah. I, I think I'm in on this. Their two areas of weaknesses was the secondary defense. I mean, you know, you have Diggs, but then after him, it was a struggle. Uh, and to get Stephon Gilmore, that's a hell of a an asset to get in the offseason. And then they did need a secondary wide receiver. And I, I do like the addition of Brandon Cooks. So it's it's almost playing by a different set of rules. I think I would I would say I'm out because I would go with Chicago. I think what they were able to get for the number one overall pick, landing a legit number one wide receiver, adding future picks and only trading down to number nine. If you're looking at like single best move of the offseason, I think it was that. And then they add in like what they did at the trade deadline by trading Roquan Smith for a second round pick and then also adding two legit quality starters at linebacker this offseason for basically the same amount. So you get a second round pick and have two starters instead of one for the same amount of money. That's a pretty good offseason by the Chicago Bears. So I'll save the Bears. The second part, though, I do agree with. I think the Dallas Cowboys are going to win the NFC East going into next year. I think an underrated move that they made was deciding to cut bait with uh, Ezekiel Elliott. Agreed. I think they basically did what John Mosellock had to do when he didn't want Mike Matheny to play certain guys where they say, no, you can't even use him anymore. Mike McCarthy, you can no longer go to Ezekiel Elliott, your pacifier. You've got to play Tony Pollard. He's the better running back. Use him the way that he should be. I think the Dallas Cowboys have had an excellent offseason. I would put him in the top three, and I do think they are going to win the NFC East, but I am out on them having the best one. I think that belongs to the Bears. Do you see the report that they said they could bring back Ezekiel Elliott like on a cheaper deal? Don't do that. Yeah, I would not recommend, but I'm in on it because I think the Bears one's good. I guess I didn't really think of it because I, I look at it as they took themselves to the next level as the Eagles were starting to fall back. I mean, the Eagles have lost a ton of pieces on defense. They lost another safety yesterday um, in, on, on a one-year Chauncey deal. Gardner-Johnson. Yeah, so 
I look at what they did, and they, they basically checked off what they needed to do. They went out there, and they got another corner. Gilmore's still pretty good. And then you look at Cooks. I, I've always loved Brandon Cooks. And you put him in as, like, that number two, number three wide receiver, you're set. And I and you got Dak Prescott. You got your quarterback. You get rid of Zeke. You've got Tony Pollard, who's a better running back at this point in his career, on the franchise tag. I, I just think they've had a great offseason, and I think they've taken themselves to the next level to where they're probably going to they, – they should win the NFC East – and honestly, with how weak the NFC is, are they going to be the favorites in the NFC? I guess it depends on how you view San Francisco. Uh, yeah, to me, if you're the favorite in the East, you're the favorite in the NFC. Okay, I so think that's the best division, personally. I, I think that that helps me lead to say I think I'm in on them having the best offseason. All right, final thing. We'll get you out of here on this one, guys. In or out, if the NFL allows the Chiefs to sign Odell Beckham and trade for DeAndre Hopkins, they should just go ahead and simulate to the end of this upcoming season because we all know the Chiefs are winning the Super Bowl. I'm in on that. I'm in on that, too. That's ridiculous if they were able to pull that off. Des Bryant tweeted the other day, and he's friends with both of these guys. I wouldn't be surprised if Odell Beckham or DeAndre Hopkins goes to the Chiefs. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if both guys end up on the Chiefs. Game over if they both freaking. And then you know that the Chiefs are going to select something 32nd overall. That's going to be a big part of a Super Bowl championship this year because they seem to do it every freaking season. A.T. Reid was already good with a band of misfit toys in the wide receiver room. Imagine if he gets two guys that are still stuck. And I can't even say here and and sit that I can't sit here and say that I don't want to see that. I absolutely want to see that. It would be amazing. Mahomes with Hopkins. Oh, Hopkins, Odell Beckham Jr., Marquez Valdez-Scantling still on the roster, uh, Travis Kelsey still around. And You've have- got a full season now of Isaiah Pacheco. I think this would be the best full collection, and I'm not saying anything about Tyreek Hill. This is not to diminish anything that he accomplished, but if you're looking at the depth, I think it's the best group of skill guys that have been around Patrick Mahomes if that happens in his career so and far. I drafted DeAndre Hopkins 10th round in my fantasy football pick'em oh league, so I'll be keeping Coming that up guy. Next, we'll hit the rewind next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. If you missed anything from today's show, be sure to check it out on the podcast page, 101ESPN.com and the, in the free 101 ESPN app is where you can go to find it. It's all presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Also, this, th- or excuse me, next Thursday, we're going to be broadcasting live from the Budweiser Brewhouse inside Ballpark Village for the Cardinals home opener. We're going to be all set up just steps away from the stadium, the opening drive. BK and Ferrari on the fast lane are all going to be there next Thursday, March 3rd. 30th live from ballpark village our opening day coverage is brought to you by rawlings green envy lawn care and by budweiser to finish things off today i think we need to give a little bit of proper credit to jake woodford who in my opinion if all things were equal would have already made the opening day roster for the st louis cardinals today he put together once again another gem of a performance five innings pitched five hits allowed seven strikeouts just one walk zero earned runs had 11 swings and misses on the day alex of his 12 batted balls only four were hit hard against them he's been he's done everything you could possibly ask for 
from a bullpen guy that is a potential long reliever, especially early in the season to make this roster. In your opinion, has he done enough to make this roster? Absolutely. Because what does Ollie love? Ollie loves swing and miss stuff from his pitchers. And frankly, he has it more so than a lot of the guys in the bullpen. I can only think of through spring training, Ryan Helsley with better swing and miss stuff right now out of that bullpen than Jake Woodford. You've got the guy who can give you multiple innings. What did he go today? Four innings, five innings for the Cardinals through spring training. You've got the swing and miss stuff. And frankly, all of the other guys we're talking about have not been this good through spring training. So yeah, Jake Woodford would be on my uh, opening day roster right now. And he won that job over Dakota Hudson. They both were on the even page and Jake Woodford was better. Yeah, I agree. I I think he's there. The swing and miss has been there. The slider looks better. And that was the pitch that kept him in the minor leagues last year. And he's revamped it. It's got more movement. It had so much movement today. It was classified as a sweeper. And I don't think he developed a sweeper overnight. I think it just has that much spin to it. So yes, to me, he would make the opening day roster as the long man out of the bullpen. I think so too. I The the reply that I get for a lot of people who say, hey, how are you going to get him on the roster though is you need another lefty. You need more than just Zach Thompson. I, I just totally disagree with that. If you can't make it through without having multiple lefties because you've got guys that can get out both sides, then I think that you're you're managing wrong, honestly. And I think Ollie's too talented of a manager to need two guys on this roster to throw left-handed. You back at questioning managers again? I'm not. No, I'm, I'm the opposite. I, I trust Ollie to be able to get through, especially with the uh, three batter minimum. I just don't think you need two lefties the way that maybe you once did. If it's Andre Pallante versus Jake Woodford, and I think that's probably the final spot on the roster right now, I think that I would go with Jake Woodford. Pallante was better last year. There's no doubt about that. And this is not a statement against Pallante, but Woodford's camp has been so much that I can't deny it at this point. I I think he has earned the opportunity to get the first crack at the mix in this uh, bullpen. If he ends up not living up to expectations, yeah, Pallante should take that spot. You're going to see a lot of churn on this roster, especially coming out of the bullpen. But I think Jake Woodford has earned an opportunity to break camp with this team. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll be back with you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. The Fast Lane next year on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.